Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm talking with Philip Crosby, who went by the name Weston in the book To Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah Jenkins. And if you haven't read this book, uh, I'll give you a quick synopsis, but I won't give anything away for those of you who may want to still read it, but we're actually on the 10-year anniversary of when Jedediah and Philip set out on a bike trip that would start in Oregon and would take 16 months to ultimately get all the way down to Patagonia, traveling through Central America, all the way through South America, and ultimately all the way to Patagonia. So the book is about Weston and Philip as they go on this trip. And while they're on this trip, Jedediah is writing a book. He has aspirations of being a writer. And part of his own journey is his grappling with his own sexuality and how that relates to his life growing up as a Christian in a Christian family. And so the story is very much written from the perspective of Jedediah. It is his story, it is his experience, and it is his perspective from which the book is written through. And on this trip, obviously, there's Philip, his friend, uh, who in the book goes by Weston. And in today's episode, we'll talk about um, why that might be and why the name was changed. So Weston is kind of a character in this book, and he's one that I found myself really fascinated by and interested in. He has deep philosophical thoughts on money and economics and politics and religion and drugs or aka plant medicine. And he ended up leaving the trip early. Uh, I think after 10 months, uh, he departed. And again, I won't give away any spoilers, but I found myself curious about this Weston character. I wanted to know more. I wanted to hear more of the trip from his own perspective, um, what he was going through, why he decided to go on this trip, and why he left and follow up with him on all kinds of things. And so, again, through Jedediah's writing, I really just found myself uh, super interested in this person. And uh, so I wound up tracking him down. It turns out his real name is Philip Crosby, and he now lives in a small town outside of Asheville, North Carolina, on a 24-acre farm with his family and his son, and he's doing regenerative gardening, and he harvested a chicken uh, from their farm and harvested potatoes and made us a home-cooked meal with all items that were harvested from their own land. And we stayed in a cabin that he primarily built with his own hand. And uh, it, was, it was just great. It was just a really neat experience and a really unique experience to kind of read about somebody in a book and feel like you have some familiarity with them and then go and meet them. And I will say that I think Jedediah did a excellent job writing this book and casting uh, Weston the way that he did. I think he really did capture the essence of Weston and probably who Philip was at that time, especially. And um, anyway, so if you have not read 
to shake the sleeping self, you can definitely still listen to this episode and enjoy it. I conducted it in a way to be mindful of people who haven't actually read the book. Of course, we're going to reference it. But like any episode I do, we're going to re-reference all kinds of things. So I don't think that this will be any different in that way. However, if you haven't read it or listened to it, if I think you can definitely listen to this episode and go back and read it or listen to it. And I definitely would, uh, would recommend it. And I think that it would add even more context to today's episode. So, uh, all right, that is it. Sorry for the longer uh, intro there and kind of a longer setup, but I do think that this episode kind of warrants it uh, for those people who just don't know or have any context for who Philip is. Um, So now you know, and now we can get on with the episode. But first, we want to thank the people that made it possible We'd first like to thank our newest group of patrons. So we'd like to thank this week, Matthew Trinier and Paul Mendricks. We appreciate both of you guys signing up to be sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. We can't do it without your help. And this community is always amazing. And we appreciate everyone who can help uh, support and produce these episodes. If you would like to find out more, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. All right. And this week's episode is also brought to us by my friends over at Old Man Mountain. Welcome back to the podcast today, Eric Finner from Old Man Mountain. And Eric, uh, we've been hearing a lot of news recently about MADE. Uh, Radivist was covering it, bikepacking.com was covering it. And um, I actually know that you just got back from MADE. And I was wondering if you could tell us firstly, like, what is MADE? Yeah, MADE was a weekend-long handmade bike show in Portland, Oregon. Um, so it's all custom builders and this was the first time. So it was an incredible amount of builders. Um, it was in Zydell Yards in Portland, which is like this big old, um, massive, massive metal building, uh, nice and like gritty atmosphere for this that then has these like super polished, beautiful bikes in it. Um, we probably had a hundred and 20 150 different brands there i mean way way too many bikes to see unless you just crawled through there um so it was a real feast of just cool amazing craftsmanship yeah no it sounds awesome and obviously the bikes were a big highlight of the show um but it's really an opportunity for all makers to showcase products you guys are in the rack and the bag business um, so tell me like, what are the, some of the things that y'all rolled out and made and, and introduced and what are y'all excited about? Yeah. So we, we showed some of our stuff earlier this year at some shows, but we finally had the release production final versions. The big ones were our Ponderosa Pannier and our Juniper trunk that just came out. So these are bike packing, dedicated, focused, uh, panniers and trunk bags. Like they're not, you know, a quick detach you know, commuter style bag. These are made to hold up to the roughest conditions, be totally silent. They compress super well and are fully waterproof, like welded seams and all that. So we're really excited to show that off. Of course, we put them on some cool bikes. So we had a a Mm -hmm. sweet like 2008 Vulture uh, from a custom builder out of Bend, Oregon. And then we also had them on a digit full suspension, like 
super super cool full suspension bike where the shocks like in the upper tube and all this like very unique setup um so yeah. real real eye catchers there and then the third bike we had we had a cervello s5 with a basket on the front so <laughs> then spectrum just went any bike can be a basket bike like <laughs> Yeah, I I saw those pictures of uh, on Instagram, and that is wonderful. And I really, I love that message that y'all are promulgating that you know any bike can be a touring bike or a bikepacking bike or a grocery bike or carry like we've talked about carrying your astronomy kit on your bike, like whatever you want your bike to be. You guys are in the business of really helping facilitate all manner of ways to ride your bikes, which is what I'm preaching all the time over here at Bikes for Death, right? Yeah, I mean, we we want people to just get out and do more. And so if you've got a full suspension mountain bike, like don't feel like you have to get a dedicated bike packing bike to try bike packing or do that. Like you can have a super good time putting some racks on your full suspension and just getting rowdy and going down whatever trail you want. And then if you've got you know, some gravel bike that is not set up to carry racks and bags, who cares? We can put them on it. <laughs> like, you know, just because yeah. it didn't have all of the eyelets and mounts on it um, doesn't mean it's not going to be a great bike packing bike. Like you love riding it. So let's just ride it more. Dude, that is the best sales pitch ever. I love it. That's why you're the king of marketing. Uh, thank you, Eric from Old Man Mountain. Everybody go over to oldmanmountain.com or follow Old Man Mountain on social media and uh, check out their new bags and uh, their racks that are tried and true and been out for a long time. So thanks again, Eric. Thanks. And of course, for listeners, we've got a discount code just for you. So for Bikes or Death listeners only, you can get 15% off anything at Old Man Mountain. All you got to do is use the URL oldmanmountain.com forward slash bikes or death. And that link will automatically take 15% off your entire order. Uh, there is no coupon code. This is the only way to beat the coupon robots. AI is truly taking over and we're trying to get creative. So if you want to get that 15% off, you gotta go to oldmanmountain.com forward slash bikes or death. All right, everyone, that is it. And now it is time to get to my chat with Philip Crosby. Uh, one quick note about this episode is the first like minute and a half, the audio is pretty rough, but it is only the first minute and a half, little technical issue. But after that, audio is great, and I hope you enjoy it. It's a little bit of a long one. We haven't done a long one in a little while, so uh, saddle up, get in on a long bike ride or a long trainer ride, and, and get comfortable and pull up a bike seat next to Philip and I around a campfire on his farm in North Carolina. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Philip Crosby, welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. 
Thank you. Uh, what do you think about my studio? Uh, I like it. Could use some weed whacking. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to the owner about that. Maybe a little work trade. Where, uh, where are we right now? One of my favorite things with the podcast is like all the interesting and fun places I get to meet and chat with people at. So where are we right now? Uh, we are in uh, Western North Carolina, outside of Burnsville, the closest town, on my family farm, I guess we are, homestead. Um, we have 24 acres on the side of a mountain. And we're at the top campsite. We have a little campground here. Yeah. A nice little campfire too, and a beautiful morning. A little campfire with some wet wood. I'm coming from uh, 110 plus degrees in Texas, <laughs> and like I don't, it's in the 60s right now for sure. Yeah, it just feels like heaven on earth. And plus Pretty a nice lucky. little slice of heaven on the side of a. Is this a hill or a mountain that we're on? This is a mountain. We are in. We're technically on like. If you go up to the top and then go left, it's called Little Mount Silo. And behind us is a real big mountain for the East Coast called Mount Silo, and it connects to the tallest mountain on the East Coast, which is Mount Mitchell, which is just oh, down no. the road. Okay, I know that one. So we're at the end of the Black Mountain Range. It's the name of the smaller range within the greater Appalachian and Blue Ridge mountain ranges. I guess Blue Ridge is smaller than the Appalachian. Yeah. But, yeah. So we are tech- this is technically the side of a mountain. Um, this whole area was... Uh, cleared out when they tried to sell the property like 20 years ago. So that's why there's no trees and stuff up here. We have a little cove. Um, And the history of it, if you're curious, is that uh, this road that we actually drove up is originally a logging road. So when the American chestnut tree died, that was 30% of the trees on the East Coast um, until like 1920 or something or in the teens, 30% 30% of the trees around here died. And then the logging companies took the opportunity to come in and they clear cut all of the mountains, like the Blue Ridge Mountains. Like they're crazy photos, like none of these trees. Yeah. Just like hills look like, right? So loggers came in, then the mineral companies came in behind them because they could get around. And the nearest little town is called Micaville. And there's actually mica deposits all on the road when you're walking up. This was a mica mine or they, they had some big pit here that they mined, and that's what that road, the miners put this road in. And then they sold, once the miners got everything they wanted, they sold the land off to the families in, I don't know, the 20s, 30s. And that's when the family we bought the property from bought this property. And they, oh, never, wow. they never logged it. Um, they ran cows down below and stuff, but they really like loved it and raised a whole family here. We bought it from an old man who was born here. Right, his dad bought the property. So all that to say is we have some of the oldest trees you're gonna find in the area that aren't like little tiny pockets of old growth forests Mm. because we we got it from a family that never that bought it directly from the mining company and then never logged it or anything. Right. So we're really lucky. There's a lot of big tree hundred year old trees here and stuff. Um, how long have you been here? Five years. Yeah. It's so interesting. So as we're gonna be talking about you were a a character in a book? Is that the right way to say that? Yeah. You were a character in uh, To Shake the Sleeping Self. Like there'll be an intro to this podcast where I'll tell everybody what, what we're doing today. But, um, you know, in that in that book, your name is Weston. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously your name is Philip Crosby in real life. 
had to do a little investigating journalism here to, to <laughs> figure, follow the clues. To I get had to there. follow the clues, but you know what? You can find Weston in real life and actually track him down, and he might even make you coffee and uh, and and uh, man, the chicken from your you made chicken from your farm last night, and and potatoes that were grown um, on your property that you're on. But yeah, you know, so it's interesting. Like I got to kind of know you through your character in this book. Um, where you're very nomadic and living a much different lifestyle than you are now. So it's really interesting to kind of, you know, see where you are 10 years later. And that's kind of like a really serendipitous thing that I had no idea um, whenever I reached out to you. Yeah, were I don't know what you expected. Well, no, but the part about how like, you're, y'all just sort of celebrate your 10 year anniversary of, of the bike trip. And I, I didn't put that together until uh, Jed posted it on, on Instagram. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is perfect timing. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what day that was. It was like it was last is, week sometime. What is today? That's a great question. Today's Friday. <laughs> but what's today, the number? <laughs> today's the first, I think. Oh. Yeah. September 1st. So I think it was like the 28th of August, maybe? Yeah, it was like three or four days ago. Yeah. It was really, really pretty wild. Um, so anyway, good good timing for a podcast and to yeah. to kind of revisit, um, you know, a bike trip that was, for maybe lack of a better word, made famous uh, through the telling of Jedediah Jenkins and To Shake the Sleeping Self. And for just a little bit of backstory for, for the audience listening, like, uh, I want to give credit to Natalie. She's hanging out with us uh, this morning. Uh, we were at a coffee shop in Waco, Texas, and I picked up a Steinbeck book, and she picked up to shake the sleep- sleeping self, and she got into it reading it. And Jed's she was really like, going to like that he was paired with Steinbeck. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's a good pairing. Yeah, good pairing. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, she recommended that I check it out. Obviously, there's bikes involved, so I'm in- immediately interested. And we both read the book and we're talking about it. And we just got to talking about this Weston guy. And I was like, I really, I'm curious. I want to know like more, like what happened to Weston? Uh, what was his story? And Natalie was like, well, why don't you just talk to him? Because like in my mind the whole time, I'm like, oh, you, you know, you read a book, you interview the author. But I thought it would be kind of an interesting spin to you know, get your side of that story and, and hear your journey and what it was like for you because you haven't written a book yet. So this can be your book. Not. Okay, great. Yeah. What would you call it? If you're going to title this book, what would you call it? To sleep the Shaking Self. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> to Sleep the Shaking Self. I don't. That's actually pretty good. I don't know. Is the book just about this trip? I've, yeah. I've done a few trips. So in my head, if I actually sit down and write a book, it'll be about the collection. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have a series of books. Or just like one book that tells all the stories. Who knows? I yeah. mean, I'll probably never have a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have like books being, well, I don't know, maybe not all of us, but like these narrations of our life that's like playing in our head. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have to know our story, right? I don't know if we have to, but I'm I'm drawn to that, like having like a a narrative of at least for myself. And now that I'm a father, like I I do want to share that with my son. Um, so maybe that'll be the inspiration to actually write something at some point to leave something behind. Yeah, especially for like your kids, like having something to like show them or pass on. Yeah, and it's funny, like 
I'm kind of glad I haven't written anything yet because, or I don't know, I could, I could always write multiple things, but like as the years go by and I reflect on the things that happen and stuff, like I see themes and like why things may have happened that like I was just so unaware of or uninterested in at the time. And like maybe the lessons and the experiences I had, the things I would share today uh, that are interesting to me are not the same things I would have shared like the year I got back, you know, like all the, we were stopped by cartel and say, you know, like that stuff is interesting, but like the stuff that now that's interesting to me is like the deeper, longer term stuff. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Deeper, deeper stuff. Just the deep stuff, man. Uh, so, so my, my audience has probably not, I know some of them have, cause I, I put something out on social media and, you know, people were responding and I was talking to Mackenzie Barney and uh, your, this book organically came up in our conversation that we we're having. And so certainly some people will have read it and be familiar with it, but just for the general audience, like what, what was this trip? Like, just give us the highlights of like, what did you sign up for back, you know, 10 years ago, essentially? Um, so Jed organized the trip. He, when I met him, two or three years before the trip, he's like, hey, I'm Jed. And he worked for this organization called Invisible Children, which was this nonprofit. And I was a big nonprofit geek and I worked for a nonprofit on the East Coast. So I was, we just became fast friends from living in the same sort of world. Um, and he's like, I'm going to quit my job in two years and bicycle to Patagonia. And I'm like, that sounds crazy. I'm like, but you're cool. Like, that's fun. We'll be friends until then. And then afterwards, I guess. And so over the years, like he kept saying it and like, um, I kind of bounced around the country and then just so happened that right before the trip, I was in like a big place of deconstruction, just changing up my lifestyle. I lived in New York city, wore suits and stuff and planned parties for celebrities and, um, didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to get into my body again and get healthy. And that was like kind of this big, like mentally, spiritually, physically healthy was like the big impetus. And then. I move out to California and run to Jet again. He's like, yeah, I'm leaving in a few months. And that's when it hit me. And I was like, I've camped a lot and I like to bike a lot. And I'm like, this guy hasn't trained at all. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like I just got back from New York where I was riding fixed gears a lot. And I'm like, I'm surely my legs are in better shape than his. And it's like a when a lion's chasing you, you just have to be faster than the last guy. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I could probably do. So like, I kind of just... <laughs> I hope Jed listens to this. My, I mean, that was, you know, that was my young, arrogant, like sort of like rationalizing. I'm like, well, why couldn't I at least join him for, I've got no plans, nothing to do. I was deliberately trying to live without planning. And I like, it just seemed like a path and something I was oddly suited for. Um, and Jed and I had always got along really well. We, our personalities work really well together. And, and we'd done some camping and stuff that like was more extreme than the average person would usually like and nobody like stopped smiling or having fun even through like bloody blisters and stuff and yeah. so I knew that like he was probably somebody I could travel with that we would enjoy it and be able to laugh at the pain and stuff and that was huge um, that is huge so it all just kind of worked out that like as he was approaching to do this trip he had somebody that was maybe going to go with him that fell out and he wanted somebody, he didn't want to do it solo necessarily. Um, I didn't, I don't know if I knew, he may have told me, but like, I didn't realize until the book that like he had like a obligation to bring someone <laughs> from his mom. <laughs> um, but it all just, you know, serendipitous. There were so many like serendipitous intertwinings on that whole trip and arriving on it that like, I never 
thought bike touring. I never thought about it at all. It yeah. just sounded weird to me. I wasn't interested in, I was a little scared of Mexico. I like to surf. So I was like, I, it'd be fun to get to Central America and mm. I could probably surf. I've been down there before. Um, but like Patagonia, when he, Jed like lights up when you talk about Patagonia and Chile and the Andes and stuff. And all I could think that whole time was like, that sounds cold. <laughs> like I don't, I've never had the same draw to that. Um, but the, everything along the way was like, was totally in my wheelhouse. Um, so what we did was Jed wanted to quit his job at 30, bicycle from the beach where his parents finished walking across the country in the 70s, which is another story. His parents famously walked across right. the country for five years and wrote for National Geographic about it and wrote books. And they stopped at this beach in Oregon. So we were going to pick up the trail there. And then he wanted to bicycle all the way to the south tip of South America. And within a year, right? A year and a half. A year and a half, I think. Okay. There was like a, it, he was trying to hit the seasons right. Right, okay. So, like, his birthday was peak summer, and that's kind of when you want to be at the south tip of South America. It's almost Antarctica. So, peak summer for down there. And so, like, that was the the guiding light. We're going to get there by this date. And, uh, yeah, I was with them for 10 months. Uh, I I left with the kind of, like, I'll go for a day every day, and, like, we'll see where I go. Maybe I'll, my bike, you know, I was on shitty Craigslist bike we can talk about. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about the bike. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it could have broken any time, anything could have this happened. This is bikes or death. Like, so I was just very gonna... open. Yeah. Um, and it turned out I was I was there until uh, Cusco. Yeah. 10 months. I have a couple questions here. Let's start with like, you know, where were you at in your life um, to want to do something like this? Um, to feel like you could do something like this? Like what was what was your motivation essentially to? It's, it's no small thing to ride, you know, from Oregon to Patagonia, take potentially a year and a half out of your life. Like that, that's a huge commitment. Um, so w yeah, what was going on in your life where you're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'm I'm interested. I'll do that. Uh, it was more like desperation feeling. It was like okay. a, the trip was like a lifeline to me. Like it was, <clears throat> I had. I'd done a lot of things before that already, so it's hard to like figure out where to start. But um, I had come to a place of like just not really being able to function very well in like the normal world. Like I was like living in New York, and like I always, I'd only ever worked for nonprofits my whole like first twenty five years of my life, like the YMCA as a kid, and then charities and. I'd quit college to join AmeriCorps. Like I was just really into like doing service work for whatever reason. And then I grew up some in New York and like I I made this like deliberate like choice in my head to like follow more experiences instead of less. And like um, I had this whole like period of saying yes and that my life began to kind of spiral. Like I let go of like any like constraints like ethically not so much morally, I was trying to be nice and stuff, but like, I was just like, uh, I don't know. I was, I was pretty free and YOLO-y. Um, How old were you at this time? 27 when I did the bike trip. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, what ended up, I, an, like the instigating factor was um, I tried to start a company or a business. I, I fished in Alaska for one summer to make some money. I made a little nest egg. I came back to Brooklyn. I was going to start a co-working space for craftsmen called the Brooklyn Garage. Oh, cool. Right? Um, 
And that, and like, so I spent months like writing a business plan and figuring out the idea. But all I ever really did for the next year was I threw a few events. I talked a lot about what I was going to do. <laughs> I don't, I didn't really know how to start a company. Yeah. I had no real prospects of like getting a warehouse in Brooklyn and like putting equipment in, like making like a YMCA for craftsmen, like you have a membership and mm. you can come use the table saw because nobody has that stuff in the city. Yeah. Um, but man, did I have a whole good spiel for parties and I would just go try and like after a year of like doing that startup entrepreneur thing, but not knowing what I'm doing, um, I just felt gross and I was like poor. And so like I decided to take a job producing an event, which is something that I had done previously, but I didn't feel like I was good at, but I did it for the money. And that job was producing an event in DC across the street from Obama's second inauguration. And I took it with the understanding that we were like helping startups and young entrepreneurs, but I found out at the event that it was more about getting the congressman I was cold calling all day in the same room with the lobbyists who mm -hmm. were the people who were paying me, it turned out, were lobbyists. It's all fine, but like, I just, after the whole thing, like there was like a fiasco, the rapper Lupe fiasco, like, was our <laughs> musician and he doesn't like the office of the presidency. So he, we didn't know that. And he went on stage and just basically kept repeating a line about Obama bombing children. <laughs> oh. And I had to like go ask him to get off the stage <laughs> and stuff. And like, so like the next night, I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I'm like, I took a job to get a paycheck because I was tired of being poor because I failed at this thing. And I'm just trying to figure out how to make this whole like world work. And I'm like, I'm only having fun when I'm like, not doing my responsibilities and just like going to California or something and like being in the water. So like, I just decided to, to try something radically different. Um, I felt like I'd failed in like the world of like making money and success and stuff at that point. And I could double down or I could just try something new. And I remember like a line as a kid that a preacher had said that I was telling you yesterday that like, uh, he said the only time in the Bible someone directly asked advice from Jesus was the rich young man. And he said, leave everything you have and follow me. And he didn't do it. And I always thought that guy was a chump. <laughs> so Jedediah is Jesus, that's the joke then. <laughs> well, no, so like I actually had that revelation and that's why I moved to California and then I read into Jed. So like I'd already, I'd, so I just gave away all my things after that event. Oh, really? And then I had very little money. I had enough to get to California. And then I was like, I'm not gonna work. I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do but like I'll sleep on the beach. I don't know. I just needed to like decompress and not participate in like that whole like earning, planning, scheming. I needed to like reconnect with, with the other side of myself. And so in that state, I show up and one of the first friends of mine that I ran into was Jed and he, he invited me on a trip to Baja the next day with his roommate and his roommate brought a friend who is the surfer guy and like, I met him at five o'clock that morning, he shows up at coffees and he's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Philip. I just moved here from New York. And he's like, where do you live? I'm like, I don't know yet. And he's like, you can be my roommate. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so like things just fell into place day to day like that. Like I didn't know what I was going to do, but like living with Christian was his name. Like I, I think I did like odd work to make enough money to eat burritos or something for like months. And then in that time is whenever I reconnected with Jed and I was like, I could live on the bike trip and not have to like, I could figure out a way to make very, that sounds like a way to live on the line. Hmm. I wanted, I wanted to like more embrace poverty than, but like, I don't know, that sounds all poetic and fun in retrospect, but also like 
it was because of failure. Like I didn't feel like I had a choice to do any of this shit. Like I'm glad I did it. And like, I think it's cool stories too. But like my experience was always just kind of like, this is obviously the choice because I don't know what else I'm going to do, but this feels right like day to day. So I think I think that's worth discussing a little bit more, at least from the perspective of the book. You know, you're you're grappling with money and economics and how this whole system works and where what your role in it is in it seems to kind of dictate a lot of like your own personal journey on this trip. And whether it's like a force thing or not, one thing that really appealed to me was how it really does showcase what people can do if they're like resourceful and creative and they really don't have money. Like you legitimately didn't have resources where you're like, could just like, oh, I could just get a hotel tonight or whatever. Like, um, so at, at least for that point of your life, like 10 years ago, like uh, what, can you like break down like where you were at and what that journey was like for you? You know, like what, do you, have you like figured it out? What do you, what do you mean? I guess by that? Well, like, you know, I don't, I don't think many people, uh, can relate, you know, most people relate to, oh, I want to get a job with like good benefits and like, you know, afford a nice vacation and like buy a nice bike and like plan it all out. And we're going to go to Italy and it'll be nice. But, you know, this construct that you're trying to like live in and like understand and, and really understand through like an experiential way, I think is like pretty foreign to most people, but it seemed to be like really important to you at that time to figure out, like what money was and what part you wanted to do with it and and how you felt like I really don't know but I think that's what I'm I'm curious about is like was it just born a failure and you're like oh well I failed and I don't have any money so I'll just go ride a bike and then it turned into a thing in a book or uh no I mean I was thinking about it on like those levels I just don't want to give myself too much credit to be like it was all a philosophical exercise it's like it was also like I didn't have any other options, you know. I painted myself into a corner okay. to live that way. Um, so I just don't know if it's chicken or egg, you know. Like I don't, I'm just not. I don't know if I'm the, you know, That's defending said, like, it or that proud of it in or anything. Your life, at that time, like now looking back, it's I, probably easy to be a critic of yourself. Like was right. I really? But like at that time in your life, yeah. What I was telling myself that the Instagram but, yeah. post was yeah. that, uh, you know, I had. I'd saturated myself in a world of like, I had been to Haiti and Liberia, right? So Haiti with like a kind of like a, it wasn't even like a service trip. It was more like a survey trip just to like have the experience with like a, with a band who's a friend of mine I grew up with called Anne Berlin. Um, and I did that when I was 22. Um, and then I went to Liberia with Charity Water, the nonprofit I work for in New York to check up on our water projects. So those are the two poorest countries in the two hemispheres. So like I've seen like the most, I've been to Monrovia, I've seen like real slums and like children living and all that. So like I had also worked for the organization that I understood to be like kind of the best model. Like the Charity Water gives 100% of all donations directly to the field and we raise operational support separately from like big donors who understand that that money scales. If you give the money to the office, they'll go raise 10 times that. Hmm. Uh, it's a really cool model. And that's what like attracted me in the beginning. And like, it's like changing the whole nonprofit sector. But um, even that, like when seeing like wells and stuff like that in like project, it's just, to me, it seemed like the idea of like, you know, I, I came to these 
ideas way later. But like at that time, it was it was roughly like working and making money and then giving that money to a cause to fix the problems that are being caused by my lifestyle, which is part of the working and making money and stuff like that isn't, it, it seems too cyclical or cyclical. It doesn't feel like it's actually going to address anything. Hmm. And I didn't know if I was ever going to actually address anything anyway, but like, I just, I just didn't want to keep being in that cycle. I wanted to try something new. And like, I had also done this before. Like I went to Australia with my buddy on a one-way ticket when I was with a hundred bucks between the two of us when I was 19 with like very similar feelings and like wanting to live differently and just pursue surfing and like the thing that like makes me happy and bicycling makes me really happy as well in traveling. So like by the time I went with Jed, I'd also done like a motorcycle trip across the country and some stuff. So this wasn't my first go around. Like I, I was just really, I'm like, I can't keep doing this my whole life. I've got to really commit to it this time. Like <laughs> I'm like, as far as I can go and like, and figure out like, what do you really need? Like, it's like, you don't, we, you know, we live in the richest country in the world. Like we think we need things. It's like, you need food and you need a place to sleep at night. Right. And it's like, that's about it. And like, it's pretty hard to go almost anywhere. It turns out in the Western hemisphere <laughs> where people will see you hungry especially if you're like biking and doing something impressive to them, like no one's going to see you hungry and not want to feed you. Like, and it's not like we were like relying on the kindness of strangers. I mean, I, that may have been my trip had I gone alone. I don't know how far I would have made it. <laughs> but, uh, but we did have that experience plenty that like of the kindness and stuff. So like, that's what I kind of learned. And that was like, in retrospect, a big lesson was like, I, was, I think I realized that I can either make all the money in the world that I need to feel safe, right? And like, from my experience, me having met really wealthy people, that number goes up the more you make. Cause like now you need a tank cause you don't feel safe enough. And now you need Joe Rogan's bodyguards. Cause you need, you know, and like the more you make like that keeps going or I can get comfortable with nothing. Right. And as little as I'm comfortable with, then I can survive with anything. And so like, maybe I do make money or get rich or something someday. But I always know that if it all goes away, like I know how to go live anywhere I can get kicked out of the country and like I can live a pretty good yeah. fun life like yeah that's a great perspective to have and a freedom that a lot of people don't have um because probably a lot of people are afraid to take that kind of risk like that level of you know uncertainty and and just not knowing where you're going to eat where you're going to sleep I know that. I was afraid so I would imagine they <laughs> <Yeah>. are too <laughs> like so I uh, I think you know I, I was thinking like we should what what is it like? Uh, I want to get this away, out of the way kind of early on in the conversation, or maybe not get out of the way, but address it uh, earlier in the conversation is like, what is it like to have a book written about you? And and like, why why was the name Weston used in the book rather than your own name? Like, um, um, well, I can't, I can speak for Jed and I guess I will, but uh, <laughs> my understanding is it was a, sort of literary device to a degree because like he is telling a story i believe the book is is jed's life story and a you know largely about his like sexuality and relationship with that and the bike trip and the characters are more devices to tell that story in a truer way if that makes sense yeah um and then also we've had we've had experience with friends and like fame and stuff like that like like messing with people. And I think he may have understood more than even I did that like, I'm 
these days I'm a relatively private person and like I I don't think it's necessarily like a thing I I want or I'm attracted to to have more followers or people who know me you know it's like having that little level it's cool because like it doesn't take much digging you can find me and talk to me and like that's awesome but just I think it was like a little buffer that I actually appreciate uh now um or not that I ever didn't but it was like a I'm like I don't know I think that's a I can't speak for him fully, but I think it was a good call um, yeah. in the end. But well, also, and like, you know, you can't write about someone else's experience completely honestly. So I think changing the name a little bit and like using it as like a foil to explain what's going through your head. That's what I was wondering. Like that, that was kind of my follow-up question is um, how, how well were you portrayed? Like at least for that time in your life, you're obviously like a much different person now and it's 10 years later, but you know, was Weston a character that you identify with? And you're like, yo, yeah, he nailed it. Or I think Weston was, like I've jokingly said this to Jed before, like Weston is like a persona I was living and that I have within me Hmm. that can be accessed. (laughs) He's there. None of that was untrue. Um, But I mean, like you see how long I take to answer simple question. (laughs) Like, so like I was like, obviously like from my perspective, there was a lot going on and there were a lot of, reasons he could not know or understand you know why i mean like that's a theme in everyone's life but especially in mine like it's a mystery to the closest people in my life why i do what i do it's a mystery to me for you know less of a mystery 10 years later but (laughs) um i generally follow like a feeling in my my heart or my chest or whatever like a compass and then try and make sense of it later Mm. So, but yeah, no, all that stuff's true. And it was, I mean, it feel, it's awesome. It's, un, it's invaluable to see what your travel partner is thinking, like yeah. in a book, it's really cool. And to see how you were seen, like, or like how he saw me and how that kind of evolved, like from the beginning and to like deeper uh, towards the end. And yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm only really grateful for it. And uh well, that's why I, I think this conversation is, it's, it's fun and it's a kind of a unique spin on reading a book. And because, you know, he was writing by, like he was on his journey and he was there to write a book and he was, he was intentional about the things that in his life that he needed to work through in his own life. And then you're this like auxiliary character who's also like going through uh, a period of time in your life. But you, you're a character in the book, but it's, it's your, your story and your storyline is not, the point of the book, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. It'd be a big book to try and like write like a full, <laughs> fully you're still explain on both it. characters and like for sure. I just, I think you just have to at some point like figure out what story you're telling and like you have and to leave to tell some story. stuff yeah. out. Like yeah. But to, a credit editing. to Jed, like his writing. I I really enjoyed yeah. the book and and his his writing and and him you know for like you know casting your character or the way he portrayed you was so good that it made me track you down, contact you, hop on a plane and, you know, sit on your property and have a conversation right now. And so- That's why I think it's true. Like, yeah. you know, like how how real, I mean, honest enough, I mean, like people, everyone I've met reacts really well to the way he wrote that. And I think Jed's, I love the way he writes. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know, it's only good. It's like- Good. Well, that's one of the main questions, I like what I got and I think that, I think that is just out there about this book is like how how do you feel about how you were portrayed, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's I was I was a wild boy. At that <laughs> I was point. A wild boy. I was deliberately <laughs> like living into the idea. I'm like I knew he's writing a book. I'd done a few adventures before. 
by that point I had realized, I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to write this shit down. And the idea of having an adventure with someone that would finally be written, I was just grateful. Yeah. I was like, that's a lot of work and that's and, like a skill. And it's worth mentioning, I know this from our previous conversations that you kind of gave him complete freedom or not kind of, but you did give him complete freedom to, you know, write his truth as he saw it. Absolutely. And, yeah. 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 I trust. I mean, I know that Jed and I, like, I know what our relationship is. We love each other and we're friends. And like, I'm like, whatever you write, like, I don't, I know that. So it's, it, there, it just tells me more about Jed. Yeah. Like whatever he wrote, it's really, it's nice to get to have that luxury. Yeah. It's great. I would love for someone, I mean, it would be interesting. I don't know if I'd love it. Maybe it would be kind of cringy to read some of it, you know, but like to have that record and yeah. it always be there is just, and that's what a cool trip. I know? have enough narcissists in me to yeah. enjoy it to whenever enjoy I it, for sure. To, <laughs> you know, my wife got to listen, I got to listen to it a second or a third time or something. I was like, yep, still, this is fun. Yeah. I get yeah. to relive it. It's still awesome. It's also, it's <laughs> 10 months of trip. Like it's, it's really tough to tell. Like I forget stories and stuff. And like, if people are close in your life, you're like, am I talking about this thing from 10 years ago again? So like, you know, I check myself, but it's nice to be able to see a whole narrative yeah. start to finish with all those stories. Cause like just things are so different, you know, like butterflies in Mexico and mushrooms in <laughs> Colombia. you know, it's like, that was all the same trip. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, what was your, uh, feelings, thoughts, fears, concerns, anything like that, like leading up to the trip? Were you worried about it all? Were you just excited? Like what, where were you at leading up to it? I was in a stage of just living in faith, just cowabunga. Cowabunga, just, dude. <laughs> just, uh, I was just trying to like be really, follow that compass and then just trust it. And then like, so no fear. Yeah. The experiment was like, I, I had planned and accomplished enough things in my life that I was curious. I'm like, how much am I actually responsible for that? I'm thinking I am, mm. but like, what if I just don't plan anything? What happens? Turns out some of the coolest stuff happens, like yeah. in my experience, right. in my life. Um, but, you know, I had to have a partner like Jet, like a yin and a yang. You know, like we both got to like support each other um, by who we were being on that trip. And like, we got to draw out the other side, the balancing aspect. Yeah. Um, I'd been in a lot of trouble by myself trying to live like that. I think you both would have. I, I, I get the sense that y'all had a very like codependent where you know, yin and yang type relationship, like yeah. you said, like that comes through in spades in the book. I think we were both capable, at least for short amounts of time of holding it, but we weren't, we both wanted to live it out. You know, like, mm -hmm. I know, at least I did. I mean, maybe, you know, I was young. Maybe I took advantage of that more. And <laughs> I was living, I was trying to live some pretty radical ideas and experiments and stuff. And uh, I know that couldn't have been fun all the time for Jed, but if anyone was going to understand it somewhat, he's able to. He's intellectual and philosophical. Yeah. And, well, speaking of like the freedom by which you're kind of, you're just following that compass. And uh, I think, I think talking about your bike that you got on this trip is <laughs> like a really great example. I mean, right from the very beginning of the trip, um, if I remember correctly, you show up to Oregon where you're starting this trip uh, without a bike and with the, with the plan of just buying one on Craigslist and kind of going from there. Is that accurate? It and, is. <laughs> okay. See, see, that is true. But what I would say at this point too, that like, I wonder, it's like, what's also true is that like, I could have probably gotten a bike before. I realized it costs money to fly the bike. So like, that was part of my calculation. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to spend too, I didn't have any money. I had to borrow the money from Jed to buy the bike. Um, 
but I was also just like having fun and getting stoned and surfing and California is like procrastinating. So like the time came like, I'll just buy it there, you know, like, so both were true. Like, like if I were to Instagram post about it back then, I may have been like, I'm philosophically just going to live so free. But like, it's not like I had much alternative options, you know, to like buy like a new long haul trucker or something and fly it up. You know, that's like, I don't know, thousands of bucks. Like, that's crazy. I think I bought that bike for $150. Like I got there, I had searched out three bikes were potentials in my size in the Oregon area. We flew out to stay with a friend for a night and then start the next day. The one that was the closest was available was this pink Univega, I think it was. And uh, it was a touring frame from the mm. 80s, a uh, steel frame, had a plastic saddle and like just like tape wrapped around the metal bars. But it rode, it shifted, it had brakes. And so <laughs> we started, I had a, I had these handmade paneers from, it's funny because now my friend Tyler's company, Bradley Mountain, is a very big adventure lifestyle brand. Mm. And they make these beautiful backpacks and stuff. I don't know if mine's up here. My backpack from last night. Oh, the green Canvas, one. like, yeah. So he was just, he was like year one of this company working out of like a storage shed. And before the trip in San Diego, like I'd met him and hung out and he's, I was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to use for bike bags. Like, I don't really have any money. He's like, well, maybe I'll make you some. And we came up with a design, but we made them ridiculously small by accident. So they look super cool, like wax canvas paneers, but they were like, I don't know how small, I don't know how to describe like how, like a, a little more than a gallon Ziploc bag, maybe a two okay. gallons of bag, but it was ridiculous for a, a 10 month or however long bike trip. Yeah. Um, so you had two of those? I just had two of those. Leather like over like... And that's it? And they looked super cool. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have anything. You didn't have a sleeping bag or anything, but uh, you look cool. I had, a, I had a Goodwill blanket and I was trying to be, you know, fucking have my standards, but with nothing. And I was like, I want wool. And like the only thing they had was like this wool blanket that was like three by three or something. It like covered like up to my waist if I had it covering my feet. Wow. And uh, I mean, that didn't last long. It was one cold night. I almost crawled into the fire to stay warm and then uh, went to Walmart the next day. Almost crawled into the fire. <laughs> Walmart the next day and bought the cheapest sleeping bag, which is the biggest, like fluffiest, and then just tied it down with some rope over the cool looking paneers. And yeah. They were dirty and I started looking real homeless real fast. <laughs> So how prepared, how prepared were, I mean, it sounds like not super prepared. Like you. For, for what? I know how I to camp. Know. Yeah. I don't know. Camp. The bike broke down I mean, a mile later. into a fire. Like. Not, I mean, not literally. I just crawled I up know. next to it. You know, no, it was not dangerously. Intention. I've but. camped a lot before this point. I, it, one of my favorite things I did when I was young, when I, I left college after a year and joined AmeriCorps, which is like a domestic Peace Corps. And the program I was in. They, I traveled around the nine Western states, which I'd never been to at that point in my life, and did different service projects for a couple months at a time. So I like worked in Salt Lake, a food bank in Salt Lake City for a few months. And then I got to work and live on Catalina Island for three, two, three months, which is in Channel Island off the coast of LA. And it is owned by the Nature Conservancy. 88% of the island is owned by a Nature Conservancy. And then there's an, a really famous town called Avalon. If you saw the movie Step Brothers. No. The comedy? Yeah, I haven't seen it. The fucking Catalina wine mixer? Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. I get to live on it. I know uh, which one you're talking about, but I've never um, seen it. And and I lived in a tent 
they it kind of like what we have here is like, mm-hmm. like we had a team of 12 people and we had these two giant wall tents with cots in them and so i got to sleep outside i got to make a fire every night um i was the guy on the team that always wanted to do that and so like i just had a weird amount of hours logged sleeping outside and camping and making fires in like all kinds of conditions and i really enjoyed that and i was a boy scout growing up i mm-hmm. think you said you were an eagle scout yeah um so, so you're just, comfortable outside. I had the skill. I mean, like, yeah. from where I was staying, I was just like, I just need to eat in a place to sleep. I got this hammock. I just need trees. I can be 10 feet off the road and you can't see me. Yeah. You know, in or anywhere pretty much, but especially in Oregon. So, like, it was just like, if we messed up, we'd just figure it out. And we, we were also in the States. It's When you don't have a job or obligations and stuff, and those are your only goals, it's like you can you can focus a lot of resources on just the keeping your bike going and eating some food and sleeping at night. And then you don't have to know much more. So part of your comfortability with this, cause you said you've been to South America before, but you hadn't been to like the central part in Mexico. I had been to Costa Rica before You've been to Costa and I had been Rica. to like Tijuana, Mexico. Yeah. Were, were you at all afraid of, I mean, we, and even in the book, you know, Jedediah's mom is afraid of Mexico. Like, did you have any fears about the places that y'all would be traveling through? Oh yeah. I mean, like not as like severe maybe as like Jed's mom may have worded it, but um, there was definitely fear, but an uh, important thing, I don't know if Jed wrote about this in the book. He got the idea from a trip for the trip from a guy that had done it. Yeah. He did mention that. Yeah. So that guy, we met with him before the trip, I think in Oregon or some somewhere, I can't remember where, maybe it was in California. Um, and we talked to him and he gave me some of the best advice ever for travelers, which is people will always warn you about the people down the road. Oh. He's like, you're, everyone in America is gonna warn you about Mexico. Everyone in Mexico City is gonna warn you about the people outside of the town. Everyone in that town is gonna warn you about the people in the next town stay in someone's house, they're going to talk shit on the neighbor. Like, it's like, it comes from a good place, but people really don't, like, people have almost no information and they're warning you about Mexico. And that's what I eventually realized. So, like, I had that in my pocket and, like, I I trusted him because he'd done the trip. And he's like, it's great, actually. Mexico's, like, one of my favorite countries. So, and we met a couple of characters that kind of introduced us to the idea that, like, don't be afraid. Actually, look around. Like, this is an amazing place. This is where all of the wealth that was plundered from the Americas flowed through and that is terrible but the remnants of that are like these ridiculous towns and architecture and stuff that like were made with like unimaginable amounts of wealth flowing through this place for hundreds of years and now it's like agrarian and beautiful and there's like this really deep culture and like um i don't know it was really cool um but we were yeah we were definitely afraid going in we didn't speak spanish we oh yeah uh it there, there was a lot of fear until mainland Mexico, which I can, there, the story I've told before yeah, that, let's hear is that uh, I met like a old lady. Um, and so like in, in Baja, we experienced the same thing. We're worried about Baja. We get in there, we get comfortable. And then like, oh no, we're going to mainland. That's where the cartels really are. And we get it to Mazatlan off to the ferry. And uh, I meet an old lady and she's like, where are you guys from? And I'm like, all proud. I'm like, Estados Unidos. And like, which means USA, yeah, and yeah. she's. <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> and and she, her whole like demeanor changes. She's like looks like concerned. She's like, oh. and then she's like, "Are you okay?" And she like grabs my arm. I was like, "What?" And she's like, "Well, everyone has a gun up there, and kids are getting shot in schools, right?" It was just after Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, whoa, like the people in mainland Mexico are really concerned and afraid for us yeah. because of the violence in our country. And I'm like, well, aren't you afraid? Like, what about the cartel? And she just looks around and she says, what cartel? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I was like, I have like, I have no idea what's going on here. Right. And I came to realize it was more like when I lived in New York and like our building for the first charity water office, you couldn't recycle. And it was explained to me that that's because there are still old mob ties in trash in New York. You know, they're legitimate now, but like there are rules and areas and uh, whatever, like some buildings just, you know, like the mob doesn't do it there. And he's just not, you can't pay anyone else. No one else is allowed to come in stuff like that. And that's probably more the experience most locals have of like the cartel is like, I know that it exists in my building, but I don't really interact with it at any day. And it's not like any of those guys are ever going to come up to me, even though I worked in that building type thing. And so, yeah, it, it really blew my mind. I was like, oh, like you could tell the same sort of stories about any country if you're taking a whole country yeah. and like getting all their worst stories in two minutes to, and you make everyone afraid. And yeah. um, I've never felt, I mean, like I felt very safe in Mexico. I felt the most worried I was, was in the USA whenever, uh, a kid with a gun like scared me, which was a soldier. On the trip? Yeah. A soldier. <laughs> okay. So like the, an interesting aspect of the trip that hit me was like how many teenagers with guns I had to pass because everyone's got soldiers. A lot of countries have roadblocks. Soldiers are usually young. The ones that they make and stand at that shit. Yeah. They're like 18, 19 year old dudes usually. And so we're biking. We've, we've biked from Oregon to LA and we're biking down to San Diego and you have to go through McClellan Air Force Base. Oh, right. Um, but like the week before, some guy had fallen without a helmet and hurt his head or something. This is the story we were told. So there's an, a new Air Force Base policy. You can't ride on the base without a helmet. And I'm like, well, I just rode here from Oregon without a helmet. <laughs> I don't have a helmet. I'm like, I can't, you want me to ride back? 20 miles to an REI and get a helmet or something like that. And like the, you know, how soldiers be, they just like, he's like, that's the orders. I can't do whatever. I'm like, can I get a ticket? <laughs> like, <laughs> can you call someone? Can I just like take the fine yeah. and just still, cause like my only other option is riding on the interstate um, for like 20 miles or whatever mm -hmm. it is like through the air force base. And uh, is it an air force? No, wait. Yeah, I think you're right. I lived in McClellan air force base in Sacramento. It is, oh. uh, it is a mil is a, What's it called? I have no idea. Marine base. Okay. Some kind of military Fuck. base. Anyway, everyone who's from California is screaming right now. <laughs> um, so this kid doesn't let me. And so like, I'm getting more honorary and I'm like, well, what if I just ride through? Like what, like, could you just you get, shoot like, me? what could like, happen what, on the other yeah. side? And he cradles his gun and says, you don't want to do that. And of all the teenagers with guns on that trip, I believed him the most. And I was like, okay, I'll go right on the fucking interstate without a helmet, I guess. Yeah. And I did. And Jed followed. I'm like, you don't have to do this. But like he, in solidarity, we all rode on the interstate. We had like oh, a couple friends with us. Oh, wow. So like three or four of us are just, I'm like, I was not happy they had to risk their life. So that was like my only like regret for not having a helmet at any point. But that was like the scariest moment That's that, what I, gonna that ask. I like was received that? the most threat, like real yeah. threat. Like I believed him, like in the whole trip. Yeah. That's we had the road yeah. closed down for cartel. We were eating at a hotel. A, a, restaurant one night with like a table of cartel dudes right next to us like with the walkie talkies and stuff and like the most afraid I was but those are our problems so they don't seem 
Mexico just seems scary because people don't know what that means and people, people talk are a different language. everywhere though yeah and just and you're right it's an unfamiliarity where it's you a dangerous don't. world everywhere <laughs> it really is we could all die anywhere unfortunately yeah but um i think there's plenty to be afraid of like generally but i also i don't know i, I don't know if that compass thing makes sense to anybody else but for me i generally feel like if i'm following that then it's i'm i'm just gonna trust i'm safe yeah and if i'm wrong then i'm wrong all you can do is your best, you know, be aware and don't be a f complete fucking idiot and maybe sometimes be an idiot and get lucky, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... I feel like I, I have... Uh, I don't know where they came from, but I have accidental, like, like situational awareness even if I'm putting myself in wild situations. Like, I have, like, some sort of, like, I'm watching everything and, like, following the flows and stuff. And, like, I think you can react in ways in those situations where things do get sketchy and people do get hurt. I'm not trying to say that doesn't happen. Oh yeah. Um, Jed tells that story in the book about that motorcycle kid that disappeared. Right. Uh, but, Henry De Devlin no. or some, uh, I can't remember. No, right. Anyway, I know who you're talking about. But um, he was another guy who, he was like a lawyer. He was like, okay, you know, F all this. I want to just like go rediscover my myself in this world. And he was just traveling and yeah, it didn't, spoiler alert, it didn't end well for him. Yeah. But I do, you know, my experience being embracing the poverty thing and looking like a bum traveling, that to me, that was a safety shell. I think I've been back to Mexico and rented cars and stuff felt way scarier. Yeah. If you have something anywhere where there's like disparity, like wealth, income, object disparity, like people who are desperate are going to want shit. So like if you don't have anything and you're biking and you've got rags... Like people, everyone is nice. Like everyone with machine guns. And we went through during, there was a documentary called Cartel Land on Netflix. Okay, I haven't seen it. We went through Mitchell Khan during that. That's when like the roads got closed down and stuff. And it was really three factions fighting the army, the cartel and these local vigilantes. And like we went through roadblocks of all of them and they'd look at us and be like, what are you doing? Or just cheer, you know, like. You don't have anything to want. Like, yeah, you're not we, a threat. We, we looked like wanderers, you know, yeah. like, and I think there's something to, so I can't understand the experience of a lawyer on a nice motorcycle. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, that scares me to think about. Like, yeah. Well, Jed does share that experience of the four by four truck in the book yeah. where, uh, you know, an American family went down. I don't remember the town, but I mean, they were, they were uh, liberated from that truck yeah. in very short order. That was explained to us by the family that took us in during the cartel debacle. They explained a lot of like the ins and outs of it. And like, if you right. have a nice truck, you could be in trouble in a lot of places because those are rare around here. And if like people are, they just see it as a tax, they need it more than you. Like it's, sorry, you brought it to the wrong you don't know enough about what's going on here type yeah. thing but uh if you don't have that stuff you're you're pretty you know like yeah, it, it's, it's like anything if you know how and people are afraid of surfing for the violence and stuff it's like but if you know how to be polite and stuff you can surf anywhere and nobody's going to give you yeah crap it is our our lack of understanding that is the basis for a lot of our fears and anxieties a lot of times right it's just things that we don't understand yeah. yeah or don't know so i'm curious to understand for you, I mean, like, what was what was the the bike part of this trip like? This is the Bikes or Death podcast. Yeah. I got I got at least. I'm happy ask. to finally talk about. It. I love cycling, so it's Do nice. You? Yeah, it's nice to. Jed didn't even care about that. Yeah, Jed. <laughs> Jed, Jed an, I mean, Jed like cycling. Like we all like cycling. Yeah. Like you're free, like a kid again and stuff. And he was looking around and stuff. But like, I like the ins and the outs and like trying to like you know get my body 
efficient and get my strokes good and okay. all that stuff and my breathing right and uh so you really leaned into like the cycling the bike trip and the bike travel aspect of of the journey yeah and it's also i mean i do enjoy all that i enjoy a lot of aspects of it but i'm also really into like health and longevity and i guess fitness but fitness is more because i'm into health um so like at that point too, that was one of those points in my life where I'm like, well, this is my opportunity to get about as fit as I'm ever going to get, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm the right age and I'm basically taking on this weird thing where I'm like working out for eight, 10 hours a day. And like I can finish that day with energy or not. And I usually just tried to use it all up by the end and like, and, and push it every day and like get better and stuff. And the beginning of the trip was like the most cycling. We started busing a lot towards like the middle and end. Mm. But like it was all cycling, you know, the whole first few months. And, and that was like, it was really nice to like get my body like just whittled down and like in shape and feel like I can, by the time we were in San Francisco, my weighted down bike, which is already heavy. It's this old steel bike and stuff. Like we got to one of those unrideable hills and I rode up it and I felt so good. And it was like, Jed had to put his foot down. No offense, Jed. Sorry to <laughs> call it out. Um, but uh, you know, one thing about Jed is I think he's super honest. I think both of you guys are yeah. super honest. So like, I almost like I don't think it's like a no. You, and, being, you know, and well, you know I, him. I'm so. also like, why? You know, there's no reason. Like, I loved cycling and cycled for many years before this. So like, why would you be able to do what I can do? Like yeah. after just a couple of months, and I don't think he felt that way anyway. But um, yeah. But if it did feel good, you know, there were little moments like that where like the old cycling ego popped up for a second. We're like, that feels nice. That's like, I can I can ride up this thing with this crazy bike because I'm used to the opposite. I, you know, I, I rode fixed gears forever. Right, in which New is York. Like, which is no weight, no extra gears or brakes or anything. And and uh, so it was fun to kind of like do the opposite and learn how to cycle in both ways. I need to take up mountain biking next. So I heard you try it. The <laughs> last few times. I've tried it twice in the last like 15 years and both times I smashed my head into something. Yeah, keep Luckily your... I had a helmet for those. Oh, good, good. I will not wear, ride a mountain bike without a helmet. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big, big fan of helmets. I mean, I don't know. It's it's your head and you do whatever you want to do. But whenever it comes to like mountain biking, I had a concussion at the beginning of February. It was like the day before my my birthday, I got a concussion in a very embarrassing manner. I fell out of a, a bunk bed huh. and like it was night and I'd been drinking and like, I, I don't even know cause I've been drinking and my foot got caught up and I mean, head first off of a bunk bed. Oh God. And I like, it could have been really like, it was pretty, a pretty severe concussion. Could have been bad, like real bad. But that was like, I don't know if you've ever had a concussion, but it's not okay for somebody who wants, who wants to feel okay. And like is into health and like longevity and is like, I care about my brain and my body. It's a very, and I almost think it's evolutionary. Like, it's like, it, it's like you're, you become more like paranoid and like aware and sensitive to everything. You're like, okay, I got to protect myself. I've got to protect this, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of helmets, especially like after that, I'm like, I don't ever want to feel like that again. I am also a big, I mean, I didn't wear a helmet on that trip, but I am a big helmet fan, especially now that I have, I mean, I don't even ride bikes because I'm afraid of cars around here. Yeah. But um, just because I have like a kid and I have a different life that I'm like, at that point, I was just kind of like trying to find my limits and I didn't care. I'm like, if I die on this, whatever. But. Ah, uh, to be 20. I'm not trying to make a point that anyone should not wear a helmet type, yeah. type thing. I'm not yeah. trying to glorify that. 
No, no. But I was living in faith in a different way. And so I was, you know, it was just a different situation. It wasn't about the cycling. Um, A lot of people tour without uh, helmets. I don't know. Everybody does whatever they want to do. And it's great. Have that wind in your hair. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm totally with it. What, uh, what was y'all's approach? Like on a day in day out basis, how were y'all approaching each day from a, uh, where are we going to go? Where are we going to get to? What are we going to eat today? Where are we going to sleep today? Like, was it all planned out or how much nah. of it? <laughs> so we knew that was the, the fun of the trip. We knew we were going south and yeah. we knew we wanted to be in Patagonia by whenever. And then we just basically, we started, we were probably doing 60 mile days in the beginning in coastal Oregon, which is some ups and downs and stuff. And then um, by the end of California, I'd think an 80 mile day was normal. And that was about probably our average normal day when we would ride. And so we would kind of look at the map, see if we can discern anything, depending on where you were. Um, maybe we like, okay, I think we want to get here. It's 73 miles or 84 miles or whatever away. What were you navigating with? Phone, map? I, I Phone. Okay. And uh, you can, after we got out of the States, you can get on Wi-Fi back then with Google and download the map. Mm-hmm. So you could download like a section and then get off Wi-Fi and your GPS always works. So you could still follow the dot and zoom in and stuff. And that's mostly what we did in a lot of places. And back then it was awesome everywhere, but especially Mexico, like you hit at least one or two restaurants a day, probably three or four, even in most remote places. And almost all of them had Wi-Fi and they were all happy to just give it to you if it wasn't already open. Hmm. So like I was as connected there. Like, I mean, you can't get free Wi-Fi here today but like i was as connected down there as as you could be with a phone with no service like um so we could do things like that yeah and i didn't always have a phone i lost my phone a few times but jed (laughs) jed was on it (laughs) so you you was the navigator play every uh plan every single day uh figure out where you want to want to sleep and and where would y'all typically sleep uh we didn't figure out where we wanted that was always almost always in the moment so that was um we preferred to camp and we would, in the beginning, it was pretty easy because it's so lush up there. Um, we just had camping hammocks so we could pull off the road, you know, 30 feet and be pretty hidden anywhere. Slept under a bridge in Northern California. There's some pictures of that. And I think he writes about that in the book, mm-hmm. which was really fun. He really liked sleeping under the bridge. Is that a Kerouac? I think, I mean, there's something about it. It was poetic. I don't know. It was cool. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it was a river under a bridge. It was fun. I think he, he mentioned that being like something inspired by Kerouac in the book. I could be misquoting. Probably. We were in Kerouac country, you know, it was like Northern okay. California. Yeah, that's what it was. Like, um, but yeah, I forgot what I was saying. About where you would <laughs> sleep and like you just yeah. pull off. Tennessee. Yeah, so we generally do that. And then, you know, once we got Mexico and stuff, we had friends and stuff around California, like throughout California. So every day or two, you're riding into a town where you know someone because he's lived in California for a million years and I had lived there a few times. Um, but then Mexico, we got into a swing of kind of like try and ride two or three days and then maybe try and get a hotel and get cleaned up or there weren't really hostels in Baja yet um, or find somewhere to like shower and then like, or maybe we met someone every once in a while and would stay with them. Um, so we'd like two or three days in the saddle and then usually like clean up and cause we were trying to like establish a life. Like we were doing this for a year and a half, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, it's like, what, how do we want to live? And like, 
I just kind of went along for the ride with everything. That's not to say I didn't immediately say yes every time Jed suggested a hotel or I was down. I was like, you know, I was I was the devil on the shoulder. Yeah. Like if anyone was suggesting hotels more than camping, it was me. But I didn't have the means for a lot of it. So it was ultimately his decision when yeah. we did all that stuff. Um, One of the really funny parts of the book is uh, when Jed gets a hotel and you're like, I don't have money for that. And then you like, I don't know, you like rolled a joint later and you're like, yeah, I mean, I, I have money for weed. <laughs> it was something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, that was, that was at the end. That was kind of when we were breaking, we were starting to clash finally and like the living that way. I think, uh, if I can generalize Jed, Jed enjoyed, and I think he said this, so I don't want to like speak for him, but I think he enjoyed the hotels and stuff more. And we had, we had gotten pretty comfortable and, and lavish maybe in my experience from Columbia on like his mom came and stayed and like we went and like rented a house for like a week or something and like Ecuador and there's just a lot of busing we hadn't really biked much in a while my body was like feeling like been drinking and doing all kinds of drugs and stuff and like I just I just needed to bike again and I was getting a little crabby about it and like I was just broke again and there was this like one hotel to stay in. It was expensive and I was tired of borrowing money from Jed because I felt like a loser and didn't feel like I was like doing a much these days. You know, after 10 months, I'm like, I'm not hanging this tarp anymore or anything. So like, I'm like, I'm not earning this in any way. And so he's like, you want to stay here? I'm like, I could sleep on the beach just as well type thing. And it's like, no. And then we he wanted to stay together and I was getting frustrated at you know, it's like when you're in a relationship, it's like, well, I'm trying to give you a solution. You can just go stay there. <laughs> and, uh, and then like, when I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm, I felt like I was doing the favor by agreeing to stay there. And then I had like $10 or something in my bank account or in my pocket, which wasn't enough for the hotel room that honestly, mm. but it was enough to like throw in with these two people to buy some weed who ended up being friends. And we had a lovely evening. Uh, <laughs> but like I had to explain my, and I hated that feeling. I'm like, this is the whole reason I'm on this trip. It's like, I don't, need to explain myself to I'm like you can leave me behind anytime any day I will be fine and that is not the attitude I had most of the time that like defiance and that and like looking back I'm like oh that was that was like the beginning of like a of a frustration and a rupture point that ultimately once I got off the trip it 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 makes a nice story arc <laughs> for, <laughs> you like knew a, what you for like doing. a climax but I didn't know you know I thought we had another year of this you were following your compass yeah but I mean, I, I didn't, I never know how far I was going to go. So like, yeah, I thought we, you know, had at least another like six, eight months of this turmoil and it would seem to be building and it was, it was, and I didn't disagree with any of it. I'm like, you know, I get why that's frustrating. <laughs> like, sure. I'm I mean, just you in can't a different spend place. that much time with somebody, uh, anyone and not get frustrated from time to time. We, we're human. You know? Yeah. Let's, so let's talk about your, um, your relationship to drugs because one of the through lines of, of this book is 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 your drug use and like uh, not only like your drug use but like the stories behind how you got weed or you know the times that you've done mushrooms and I mean there's just all kinds of stories and it's kind of like you know backdropped by Jedediah's like lack of understanding or interest or anything in that type of world and so it's really interesting to like you know hear him. Uh, walk us through like what you were experiencing, but um, you know what what was your uh, relationship with with drugs prior to this trip, and 
Um, it does seem like, at least from this telling, that you are on some sort of a journey or a quest or mission to understand um, either the drugs better, yourself better through the drugs. So take us through kind of that part of, of your journey. Um, well, to start, I didn't, I never did drugs. I never even drank till I was 23. Never smoked weed till I was 25 or six. And I did this trip when I was 28, I think. So I was only a year or two in, but like I did, before I made the decision to start experimenting with things, I did a lot of research and I was very interested and intrigued. And like, I, I was always more oriented and interested in like plants that make you feel funny, like naturally occurring, uh, like traditional plant medicines is like a, is a name that a lot of people use. And like, especially ones used by cultures and like reading about why and how they use them and stuff. And it was a world I just knew nothing about, never cared anything about my whole like first 25 years or whatever. And I did mushrooms actually in this general area in the mountains for the first time when I was like 25. And that really opened my eyes. And I was like, this is way different than I thought it was. Um, let's, let's pause there for a second. What put, you know, doing that on your radar and what was your, I mean, we're, cause you can use this, uh, you know, hallucinogens like kind of in a party way. Right. Or you can use it in like more of an intentional way. So like at 25, like what were you thinking at that time? I had a friend who had done them for the first time, like a year before. And she had a very, she was in nature and she had a, so she kind of like led the experience. And I was very lucky for that. Like, so we actually went on a hike to a waterfall with her dog hmm. and there's actually, I actually have footage of it somewhere. It's really funny. Oh, cool. It was very giggly and like bright colors and like this intense connection with like nature and God. If I, I mean, I don't know if any of that makes, doesn't, I don't know how to put it into words, but that Anyone was the experience. Anyone who's done mushrooms will understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so like that really opened me up and then I didn't do anything for a little while, but I was like more open to if things came around and things didn't come around for a long time. And then before the bike trip, once I knew I was going on it, I had read a book, a mutual friend of ours, Jed and I gave me, and it was called Breaking Open the Mind. And it was kind of a survey of a lot of the traditional plant medicines. So like, that's where I learned about like what DMT, ayahuasca, San Pedro, Morning Glory, like a lot of that stuff, like, I just got a cursory understanding of all that stuff. And um, I think I did Morning Glory seeds for the first time before the bike trip. And on the bike trip, I learned that that was like the number one, it was possibly the most used medicine of the the indigenous Mexican people, like before white people got here. Like, mm. and, and they use these medicines for like the things we use for like depression and stuff. Like they would call it like divination, like, like if you're stuck and you need direction from God, like morning glory seeds were like a thing that, um, that the Mesoamericans used like, uh, like way more than they used mushrooms. And I don't, and there's almost no evidence of them using peyote even. That's more of a modern one. Okay. Um, which by the way, don't do morning glory seeds people there. Schedule one, I believe. And there is a way to do them that, and there's a way to do them that will make you really crampy and throw up a lot. <laughs> So <laughs> speaking from experience, don't just go to the old heart. No, speaking from a lot of research. So I didn't uh, have the experience, okay, okay. Uh, which is Learned through so, other people's so experience. All that to say, like I was nerdy about it all. Like I, I researched all that stuff. I was very concerned. I grew up in a, in a family with like substance abuse and like uh, a lot of experience with like 
12-step program stuff from a young age. So like I was always trying to be very careful to make sure I wasn't like losing control, but I, but I was curious and I felt like it was safe enough and I dabbled enough to where by the time I was on the trip, I started the trip sober. I didn't even bring weed. I, was, I had smoked a lot by then. I had a very, my relationship with weed had really blossomed in that year. Um, and like I'd seen it grown for the first time in California and stuff. And like, I just like really had this, I really enjoyed that plant. Like if I like the, if there's the analogy of the medicine man works with one specific plant first and foremost, but also uses other plants like that for me, like weed would, or marijuana would be the cannabis would be that plant, but started the trip sober. Serendipitously met a guy who gave me two handfuls of weed after I did him a small kindness um, outside of Big Sur, I think it was, and then had weed all the way to Baja from that. And then from then on, it was like a, it was almost like a beacon for like a interesting opportunity or like a, a crazy story. Like, I don't know. It, it, it was whenever it appeared or like, or I was finding it or finding people with it or having experiences with it, there's usually a story around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we biked on, I began to learn about the other traditional stuff as we got closer to stuff. And I talked to people, like I learned about morning glory seeds, the whole thing I just told you. I learned that the mushroom, that where mushrooms were reintroduced to Western society was in Mexico. Like that this guy from New York City had flown down hearing about these tribes that continued the use of mushrooms through the Spanish Inquisition, through people being killed for it and statues being broken in these little tiny pockets of Oaxaca and these mountains. Thousands of year old tradition continued through 500 years of persecution until this guy came from New York City and tried them and then introduced them back to the Western world. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going right through there. Like that, this is interesting. And as I got closer, I heard more and more pieces, heard about where towns I might go. And something in me just felt really drawn to going there that I couldn't explain. But like, I was just accumulating all this knowledge in a fun way. You know, for years I was Googling shit and yeah. watching videos and reading things. But now I'm like talking to travelers who have, are also interested in this stuff and giving me, and I have to weigh what's true and what's not. And like talking to locals and everyone's kind of got like a distorted image of the truth, but you start putting these pieces. It was a very fun, like, secondary journey. I'm like, the main journey is like ride with Jed, go south, support one another. But then I also happen to be in this flow of like getting a deeper knowledge of all these plants and and traditional medicines and stuff. And I wasn't attracted to like synthetic stuff really. Like I yeah. I kind of had like a, a dualism in my head about that. Like I like the natural stuff, the man-made stuff kind of like feeds the ego more is my experience. I'd done acid and stuff. And I felt like that was more like a ego enhancer the man-made stuff and that the natural stuff was more of like a ego dissolution. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never, I've done both. And it's interesting because it, on acid, it does feel like things are happening for you almost. Like it's performing I feel like I am God you. on acid. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm, I can hear God on yeah. mushrooms. <laughs> One time I grew a tree, like it was just a small tree and I just sat there and I was like, grow. And so I guess that's kind of godlike. Like I'm commanding, and yeah. it just grew to this massive tree. And I'm like, yeah, I did that. That was cool, <laughs> you know? And, but I, I get that because like on mushrooms, it's a different experience. You're just like marvel the tree for what it is. Grateful you know? for the tree. And yeah. 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 Like Both I'm, of them seem to give me superhuman physicality for moments. 
I once climbed a tree in NASA that I was like a monkey. I was like <laughs> jumping and swinging way too high from branches and stuff. Super dangerous, but like I kind of get it because like you seem so in tune. You're just like on a, another plane where you're like, I was. <laughs> sure, it could have ended differently, but it didn't. Yeah. Well, you're here. Yeah. Yeah. It ended pretty well. Uh, so one of the stories that I was really interested to hear um, that didn't make it in the book because Jedediah. Uh, took like a three week break, I think, and went home for Christmas and like hung out with the family. And during that period in the book, uh, you were in Oaxaca, I yeah. believe, and and you went to Magic Mountain and and had an experience there. But it didn't make the book because uh, Jedediah wasn't there. And so um, it's actually a place that Natalie and I have driven through um, when we were in Oaxaca a couple times. And uh, so we're kind of familiar with the area and, and a little bit of the history of that area. And I'd love to hear like your experience that, that happened. Yeah. So Jed was flying home for Christmas. Two days before I got dysentery, Montezuma's Revenge. <laughs> uh, we're staying in the home of a accomplished aged archaeologist somehow. <laughs> He's given us the whole upstairs flat to his home. Uh, which is a nice home in Oaxaca City. And um, I'm puking and pooping nonstop. And then Jed has to leave. And I'm still puking and pooping. And then the archaeologist leaves to go hang out with his girlfriend on the beach, even though he's like 67. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just puking and pooping still. And we'd stayed in a hostel in Oaxaca City a few days before the, or right before the archaeologist guy. And we'd met some... Uh, girls, not like romantically, but just friends. And uh, I somehow, I got out of the house for a day to try and get something to eat and I ran into them and they came back and like nursed me back, like brought me food and drink and smelled my puke and poop because the bathroom didn't have a door. Uh. And then they also had organized a, a bus ticket to the town, to a town where mushrooms grow and like these sort of like cultures and traditions still exist um, from what I understood. And I was down and I had begun to, in my like state of being crazy, not eating for days and stuff. I was like, well, I wonder if like, cause the mushroom trip started coming together and I was like, I wonder if this is intentional because like Oaxaca is the food capital of Mexico. I've been hearing about this since we got into freaking Tijuana. Like, oh, you're going to Oaxaca. It's going to be the best. It's the yeah, food yeah. and everything. So I was like, there's no way I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to be able to fast before this mushroom trip, which I thought was important to me at the time or like if going to this place. So I feel like God made me fast. <laughs> like <laughs> I didn't need for five days and then ended up on a bus to this mountain. Um, and we show up and I mean, it's hard to describe. Like it's like a collection of people from around the world who are also travelers interested in all the same weird stuff I just talked about some of them experts in it, like been doing this sort of thing, living like this for years or doing trips like this for 20 years. And like, uh, it was a real eye opener. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like, these are, there are lots of people interested in this thing that I thought that I was like very niche and that nobody else cared about. And uh, they take it just as seriously, if not more seriously than me. And mm -hmm. uh, um, so there's this collection of characters and and one of them is this, shaman guy i guess you'd say this like blonde dreadlock shaman guy who was very orchestrating the room the whole time and i i start asking about mushrooms and the mushroom mountains i'm super eager and he's just like kind of coldly he's like not the right time of year you can find them but it won't be it won't be like 
real. It's like he's a it's like the Mickey Mouse like experience. You got to come back at the right time. Or he's like, but he's got some really pure acid. He points to some other dude, and I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. I don't like the synthetic stuff. I showed up for the mushrooms, and he's and something I don't know. He just he spoke so true, never kindly really to anyone, but always very so true. You couldn't disagree, and. uh something in my head was like the line it sounds so corny but it's like written in my journal is like don't begrudge the magic whatever that means like <laughs> the form that it's like what's true is you've been biking for five months learning about all this lore getting to this place this is your destination whatever it looks like let go of your expectations like mm. and like try and understand it's like you are here for whatever re- i don't know why i'm here like this is like, a year before, if you'd told me I'd be like on a fucking mountain in Mexico because the mushrooms were there, like I would never have believed you or, you know, like it, it was just a very interesting for me like to be there. And like, so I was just trying to open my eyes and it turns out it was a very magical place. And that like, I did eat that acid um, on a relatively empty stomach. And then later, like I found out that they grow a lot of like traditional plant medicine stuff there and we ended up smoking DMT which I'd never done so I did that for the first time mixed with weed grown from there and I think maybe hash probably grown from there um so it's this really weird hyper local like almost like foodie experience of what people would call drugs or some people would call plant medicines yeah I guess it's drugs too if the acid's in there <laughs> which is apparently made by the one of the Grateful Dead acid cooks but apparently i've heard since then that's a rumor that everyone says oh (laughs) um so yeah i i mean it's a very long story but like we i actually me and the shaman guy after smoking dmt like went hiked up the mountain and i'm barefoot and we're walking through this cloud forest all night and uh we get to like near the top and there's these trees that are down and i'm starting to come down and i'm like shit man what am i doing i'm like we're lost on this mountain. We've been walking up it for hours. This guy's like not give, offering anything. He's just like never offering a direction. He's like, what do you think? Should we be, and like, I'm like, I'm not crawling over these trees. There's nothing up here. I don't know why I'm going on this trail. I'm like, let's go back. Dude walks us straight back to the hostel. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> you seem really wishy-washy the whole way up here. And it seems like you know exactly where you're going. Yeah. And we go down and, and we come and we actually make breakfast for everyone. And, uh, and the next day I'm kind of recovering, like soaking my feet and stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck was up there at the top of that mountain? It seems like there, that trail, seems like those trees were deliberately there to like stop people. And so I stay another day. This time I eat acid during the day. <laughs> Some Australians had come and I made friends with them. And then we all go up the mountain and they have the same experience I had the first day, which is like, this doesn't go anywhere. Like we're good. This is like, just like a water cistern. And then there's this little trail that keeps like peeking around every little corner. And like, if you want to keep following it, you can, but it's like a bitch of a hike. And like, but I do it again and I, I lose everyone on the way. Like everyone's like, there's nothing here. And they drop off. Um, like I had at the top and then I get to the, the trees and this time I go over them. And then there's just like 10 feet more. There's like, it opens up to this like opening and there's this huge stone altar. And it's like this place that people go and like, and I was just like, it was this huge lesson for me that like, I was like, what an idiot. Like, this is so me. Like I go to the edge and then I pull back and then I go like the next day and it's good. But it's like, imagine if I had gone, you know, and like, and I feel like the guy, I don't know if this is true. I still don't, but like, I feel like he was 
he was initiating me in a way into this world that I didn't even know existed. He didn't want to go up the mountain. That was very clear, but he did it for me because he could see in me that I was like here on this journey and I'd biked here and stuff. And he was way older. Maybe he had done something like this before. And he wasn't offering any support at those trees, even if he knew what was beyond mm -hmm. them. He was, it was more of a test. And then he walked us straight down. And he wasn't surprised when I told him what I, that I'd seen something up there afterwards either. And, uh, and I, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was, so it was, a, it was a very interesting experience and I was in an altered state through most of it. We'd smoke <laughs> DMT again later. I walked more people up the mountain that night in the full moon, again, barefoot, but this time what a couple of people made What was the altar like? Was it, was it? I can't explain it, man. <laughs> it's just a special place up there. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> That's all, I mean, it's going to sound worse if we make, try and explain why it's, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It's, Fair enough. The air is very still. It's you got to see it yourself. Yeah, it's just a very, it felt like a holy place, like if that makes sense. Like, um, and so I go up a couple more times and a couple people actually make, I've been back a few times and it's so few people make it to the top. Oh, really? <laughs> it's really funny. It's like, it's like the, the trail is testing you. It's really, or the mountains testing you and like weeding, Even with weeding you, people out. Because I assume you're not like the shaman guy. You're actually like, oh no, you want to see what- I've tried it. I still lose people. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I try and be more like him now if I were to go back, but okay. um, I really value what- he might have done for me, or I just imagined. Uh, and then, and then at the end, actually, the shaman dude—he was kind of moody, and he got mad at some point and left. But what I had done was I had showed up. I had just done this like postcard thing, selling postcards online to raise money, and I sold a. We did a post about it, and I sold a bunch, and I had like hundreds of dollars for the first time, maybe a thousand dollars. I'm rich, <laughs> and so like I give this guy like a hundred bucks or whatever money I had on me when I got there. I'm like, I don't know how much things cost. I'm just going to give this all to you. I just want to be able to do whatever, whenever, if that's okay with you. He's like, yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know if I gave him too much, but he had gotten moody with someone and then left and then came back, told us he had felt guilty. And as like this weird, like penance, organized a Tamaskal sweat lodge with like the old man on the mountain there. Mm. Like he's not some guy that tourists usually get to go to supposedly. Mm and like did this whole thing for us for and for me because he had like felt like he had taken advantage of like I'd given him that money and he hadn't uh, I don't know like it was this weird it was always begrudging he was doing this right thing that was like very guiding it was really funny but but I got to experience this really amazing ceremony like indigenous ceremony of a earthen sweat lodge and you're like praying to the four directions and stuff I don't know it the whole experience like completely changed me. So by the time Jed ran into me again, like I was like, I'm a new, I'm a different I'm person. A different person. And the analogy I use these days is like, say we were swimming underwater. I, I swam underwater across the pool. Jed swam under and back, if we're talking about Patagonia, but like getting to go home, he like got to take a breath. Hmm. And so like, by the time he get back to me, I'm still underwater. And like you had a breath and now you're like swimming with me like everything's normal. And I'm like half, like I have no air. Like I'm, you know, so like it's hard to ever get back on the same page because I'd never gotten home and had that breather or anything. So it was like, I had just been on the road longer without a break. Yeah. And you, you can't do, you do can that without doing it. There's no like getting back into it. And we didn't know that when we left, like I was very supportive of him going. I'm not, it's not like a criticism. Sure. But in retrospect, if anybody's doing anything like that, it does feel like if you're trying to be on the same page with someone traveling, it's like, 
that sort of going home, like separation thing, it's like, it's, it, it just jostled us to where we were never quite on the same page again. Yeah. The rest of the trip. We got, got along fine, but it just felt like. A little different. The, the, there's just so much, I, I couldn't tell that whole story. We were already having more, we were having more experiences by the time we saw each other again. So it's like, you can't go in depth and like explain what happened over the last three weeks. You know, it's yeah. like, or, or like really get appreciation for one another. You gotta keep pedaling. You said that that experience changed you. Can you <laughs> like elaborate on that at all? Like, do you have an understanding of like how you, how you changed after that? Well, I feel like I experienced like radical presence for the first time when I smoked DMT. And part of that was I was, when I did it, I was telling you last night, like I, when when I smoked it with this guy, I, I hit it, passed around the, it was like a spliff with DMT in it, passed it around, I hit it again. And I guess I made mention of the mushrooms again. And the shaman guy like looks at me and he's like, dude, you are on a lot of acid and you just smoked a good deal of DMT. He's like, look around, this is it. Uh, you <laughs> keep here. talking about these mushrooms. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't get any more. And the second he said that, all my like peripherals became like completely clear. And like, I just felt radically present for a few minutes. And like, I don't know how to explain that, but but I know how to kind of access that now, like now that I've experienced it. Um, and another weird thing that happened was after walking the mountain with him and coming back down, we went to make breakfast and he's like, go by, because the tradition in this hostel was you cook for everyone and then you're fed mm-hmm. most of your meals, but you cook one meal for the whole place. And so we were gonna do that since we stayed up all night. And I'd never spoke Spanish by myself. I had Jed with me the whole time. And so like, we always kind of leaned on each other and I was really, it turns out I was super nervous to like walk into a little tienda and also still on acid, <laughs> like <laughs> we order some eggs and stuff. And I just like finally t- held my breath and walked in and started doing it and something broke. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't have anything to be, I can point, I can say yes or no. It was really easy. And then from that moment on, I was saying yesterday, like I feel like I can communicate to anyone in any country, but especially like I communicate fine Spanish speakers. I don't speak very good Spanish, my vocabulary is shit, but like I can look someone in the eye, try and hear them, point to things, ask questions if I'm, you know, if I don't get it and I can usually get by pretty good. Yeah. But I couldn't do that before Weird. that experience. I mean, it was like, it was seriously a light switch, like that one thing. And then I was like, oh, I'm good. So it was funny when Jed got back because I was like way good at like meeting locals and hanging out and stuff by then. Like he met me when we were making San Pedro potion because when we arrived at this place in Nicaragua where we were supposed to rendezvous, I made friends with like a lot of the workers like immediately. Um, And one of them was the yoga guy who had been wanting to do, he had taken San Pedro a number of times but he'd been wanting to make it. I had been on this journey where I had just experienced all the stuff given to me. I was ready to start sharing it. There was this group of people who were, we were rendezvousing with for New Year's at Nicaragua. There's like probably 25, 30 people um, at this hotel that were like friends and friends of friends. And so we had a group of us up on the mountain on New Year's who were sitting around a fire drinking this San Pedro, which is a cactus that contains mescaline. Hmm. Um, and that's when Jed came home back for New Year's. And he's like, hey, whoa, Philip!" And I'm like wearing my serape. And part of the tradition of brewing it is you're supposed to be drinking an old batch while you brew it. So uh-huh. me and the other guy were drinking it while we were. So we were already like in in the grandfather's arms by the time in Jed the got there. Arms. What was your reasoning behind pursuing? And I I'm, I kind of know from, you know, reading the book and, and knowing you a little uh, is that, you would consider them plant medicines. 
what what were you what was your goal? Did you have a goal um, with experimenting with these different psychedelics? Um, Mostly curiosity, yeah. Like, but but I think framed in the light of like I grew up with a in a Christian home, I guess. My grandparents are very Christian. I was explaining this yesterday. I had the option to go to church a lot. It was all around me. I know the Bible. I know, you know, I, I got to choose it from a very early age. I was never forced into it. Um, and so for me, I kind of left all of that in my twenties and deconstructed hard and, and stopped thinking about that. But, but on this trip, I was kind of coming back to notions of God and in mystery and having, you know, I see religion as just having a language to discuss mystery these days. And I, I kind of went in my agnostic stage, I didn't have a language, so I couldn't talk about a lot of this stuff. And so for me, the work around in my head was like, I was just like, well, you know, if this stuff grows, it's natural. It's made by God. I mean, technically everything even humans make is natural because humans are natural, but, um, so like, why? I guess it's my, I'm like this, like, weird these things make you feel funny and like what are they trying to teach you like what are they trying to teach you are they sentient like is there i think there's a message you're really open-minded yeah i think i'm a big believer in like you can see the universe in a grain of sand so like you could stare at a grain of sand forever and like still uncover like the truths of the universe but uh i found god and or or like you know it widened my idea of like what even is this mystery and like what is God mean and like it just those things make you feel different and think differently and and I was interested in seeing what they were about and I got to a point in in Colombia where we went to another mushroom mountain where I ate so many and I got a bit of a wake-up call of like okay you can't you got away with doing this naively for a bit and innocently but it's the real world and there's darkness out there was kind of the big wake up call that I got. And I was, mm. and I really confronted the fact that evil does still exist. And like, I, I could live in this bit of like a la la land persona, the Instagram, like what people would want to hear probably of like, you just follow your heart and it all works out. And, st- and it's like, I'm like, nah, you know, people are still getting hurt and like, I'm still affecting people's lives. And like my decision, like if I'm not thoughtful with my decisions, like they're, my decisions are going to affect people no matter what. So I should consider that probably. And like I had an experience that triggered that, but that really didn't start sinking in for a couple of years after until after I got back. I, it was very confusing mushroom. I finally got to eat the mushrooms and I ate all of them <laughs> <laughs> and I went to like another dimension and like, uh, I don't know. It sounds silly when you're trying to explain things more than that. But, um, the takeaway many years later was like, Oh, there is darkness. I've been, living a bit naively and a little la la landy and and i i do live on luck a little bit and i think that's you know i, I don't want to be grateful for that and acknowledge that and like i i have gotten to i have done stuff i have also taken precautions that when it seems like i haven't you know i consider things and it seems like i'm just being an airhead um but but my arc i guess with all those medicines and stuff was like this is really fun. Oh my God, this is so interesting. I want to try everything. I'm going to do this. And like, I keep, it keeps working out and stuff. And then like, I got to the mushroom mountain thing and then I'm like, this is a pretty gnarly experience. It actually worked out fine. But after that, I was, I was less interested and like, I'd felt like I'd gotten enough information to chew on it for a while. Hmm. And I've, you know, since I've come back, like every once in a while, if I was around friends or something, people would bust something out knowing that I was in I had at least at one point been down to do everything. Yeah, they read the book. They're like, hey, and I, you know, this guy's down. 
Um, but but I've chilled out a lot on that stuff. I I actually take it obviously. I take it pretty seriously and like almost spiritually. And and uh, I'm interested now in relationship with like this place and the idea of like if I were allowed to grow things, experiencing magic medicines or plant medicines from the place where I live and breathe and drink and made from the same water and air that I am. Like, that's what I think is interesting about like the mushroom mountain people, like, like in Mexico and stuff, like those people, like, it's like, it's it's so ingrained in them. It's not like Mm -hmm. the Beatles coming for a trip. It's like, you know, like they're eating mushrooms made out of the same soil they're growing their food out of that they're, that their parents are buried in and stuff. You know, it's like you, it's a deep sense of place. And that's the sort of thing that intrigues me now that I've traveled so much. I'm like, I want to try the opposite. Like I really want to root and have a deep sense of place for a while. And Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, all of that. <laughs> that's that's the all question? I'm going to say. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you actually a- answered that question and my follow-up question. So I don't, I don't even have to, you're doing my job for me. Uh, let's, I think it'd be interesting to know, like, what was your personal favorite part of the book? Because, you know, as I know, and, and it might be obvious to most people, but like, you didn't write the book, uh, you're, you're a character in it. And um, so you didn't even know what was going to be in it, what wasn't going to be in it. So my curiosity is, uh, when you read it, what, what stood out to you? What was maybe your favorite part or a favorite, you know, quote or something? And then also, like, did anything surprise you that wasn't in the book um, that you're like, oh, wow, that didn't make it? Uh, my favorite part is probably the stuff that people that don't know Jed or that are like really into cycling probably were like taking me back by, but like, like the personal stuff about Jed, like the, I knew a lot of that. It was nice to see a friend articulate it all to the world. Um, and like get to see that, that side of him and that depth of him. Cause like when you bike, you're not talking about your childhood every day and all that shit. Um, so for me, probably because I know him so well and I, I know the trip so well, like I'm like a lot, of, I mean, the book was great. The stories are great. A lot of them were so familiar and like a lot of like the sayings and the quotes and stuff were Jed was into in real time. Like, you know, there's a lot of really good writing and, mm-hmm. and stuff um, that I can't even, I can't parse out at the moment what was even in the book or not necessarily or in Instagram posts or just conversations we had, you know, he's a pretty deep fellow and he, he talks like he writes. Mm-hmm. So, he does. um, you know, a lot of that's like reading conversations. So on that real quick, just a note for listeners. Um, I listened to the audiobook twice and he's an excellent narrator. Yeah. Like I really like his voice, his cadence. That's very his personable. For as yeah. good of a writer as he is, he's better with people. He's uh, very charismatic and yeah. personable, which is something we both have. Like I have a charismatic like gear as well. Yeah, yeah. And like we can, I think that's what made us so successful in in our endeavors is like just being able to like make friends with people everywhere we went sure. and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, most things were in the book. I don't want to, I don't want to speak too much to Jed wrote it. It's his, uh, fair enough. Yeah. It's, it's his story. I guess story, if you wanted so. in there, you can write your own book. Exactly. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big a, fan of, that's a I just point. appreciate what was created. Not, I don't that's have no criticism. Point. Yeah. It's a bad question on my part. No, but it's that's not. An it's point. a great, it's a great question. I think, but that is, that is kind of, uh, there wasn't much that wasn't. There were things I asked him not to put in there, and he didn't. Okay. So I'm glad. So what were those? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll put them on a podcast instead. Just trying to be thoughtful about, you know, like you know, as uh, I think my behavior in those days was very, uh, if not selfish, self self centered, and and 
I think innocently, usually and accidentally, but still inconsiderate of of others and especially women and stuff. Yeah. Um, just my relationships with, with people in general, especially like uh, like fleeting ones. But like you know, tried to tried to be good. But when you look back, when you're older, you're like, oh well, I wouldn't act that way these days, probably. Sure. Um, and that's hopefully the answer that we all give ourselves when we're looking back, if we're all growing and you know, choosing differently based on experiences and maybe mistakes or whatever, we should all look back 10 years and be like, eh, that's not exactly who I am now. And yeah, you know, I wouldn't do that again. It's how we grow. Yeah. That's, you that's gotta, just You gotta growth. feel that way and then you grow the yeah. other direction type yeah. thing. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think it's important to be like, yeah, that was me at that time, but it's not me all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. I just don't defend anything really either. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not necessarily proud of, and yeah, I'm grateful for getting to experience it all. And like, and it, and the way I acted was the way I acted. And like, I don't, I don't know. I was just trying to figure it out every day at every moment. And one part of the, uh, one part of the book that I, that really like kind of threw me, I was really shocked by you and Jed's response was to the Darien gap. Am I saying, is it Darien or Barian? Darien. I, yeah. It's like fucked up in my head. So the Darien gap. So first off, can you tell people what the Darien Gap is? Yes. And then like in the book, when this guy is talking to y'all and he's like, you know, telling y'all about it. And, and anyway, I want you to tell the story, but like y'all's response to the Darien Gap was much different than what mine would have been. And it really shocked me. Um, I'm curious what yours would have been. My, so the Darien Gap- Yeah, I'll tell you what. So I want to hear yours first. It's a, uh, it's a hundred mile or so stretch of road that, well, of not road. So you have what's called the Pan American Highway that connects like Canada to the bottom of Panama. You could drive a car. Then there's this 100 mile stretch of rainforest that is occupied by gorillas, not to be confused with gorillas, um, like, like paramilitary folks um, and drug growers and dealers. Um, it's kind of a no man's land. And then you get to Colombia, and the roads start again and you can drive all the way to the bottom of South America. But you can't drive a car from here to there unless you're Jeep in the 1980s. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I learned about that when researching it. The, the, a Jeep did it in 1980 something or whatever. It's 100 and something miles and it took them 700 and some yeah. odd days. I forget like, how many bridges they built. It's a lot. I mean, it was a lot of money and a lot of days. Kind of no man, like you said, no people have walked it. Yeah, you will find accounts online, and those are the people that get my blood boiling because I (laughs) wanted to go so badly, Uh, or at least part of me did. Yeah, or maybe I wanted to be able to say later that I wanted to go so badly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, that that was the reaction that shocked me because when when this guy's explaining it to you and be like, you can't go that way. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll just take the boat around. That sounds great. Like in my mind, like that sounds fun. I have no interest in in saying that I wanted to go or I did go. Like it just, like I think I'm semi-adventurous, but both you and Jed, at least from the telling of the book, were like pretty bummed and actually tried to figure out a way to go, which surprised me. I'm I definitely like, tested the guy that was telling us to see how sincere he was. And he was, he was very sincere. It's like not possible. What attracted you to that? Were you really leaning into the, I don't know, the, the primitiveness of, of your travel and or wanting to experience it all? Like what? I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain when you made it that far and mm-hmm. you just gone down the whole continent. Even if it's in a bus, some, it's like my, my body 
you know, across the land has made it this far. Is mm. there something that I love the water? I mean, there's no, I love sailing. It's that was really fun for me, but I, it was also, I didn't have any money, but it's also just sounded that's the kind of adventure that gets me excited. I don't know if I would ever actually do a thing like that, but that idea of being like one of the people that went through somehow and like made it and there's snakes and there's, yeah guys you gotta hide it just sound i don't know like the seven-year-old in me was excited but i think i also sit at home and google it and book that trip to do that but you're in there you're in the place and i don't know if i would count trying like you know asking a guy in panama city how possible it is isn't isn't much of an effort in my opinion (laughs) i was just surprised Um, i even wanted to like your attitude was yes i want to i want to do that yeah no we asked a lot of people and i joked about it a lot just to see people's reaction and nobody I thought it was funny. No, no. Nobody that knew what I was talking about was like, they're not going to let you do that and you're going to die if you try. And, yeah. And I was like, okay. Okay, I guess I'll take the boat. Let's talk about the different modalities of travel. Because yeah. you talked about how, you know, especially in the beginning, I think for the first three months you said it was mostly by bike and then it kind of progressed to um, taking buses here and there. And then this time you had to take a sailboat. Um, and that, and that is, is talked about in the book and it's a really neat... I thought it was a neat kind of a side adventure, you know. That, that That's you a great on. trip suggestion for people. Yeah, it's a really fun sail, sail and a great experience. Yeah, like they've done a good job of. They do that every day, for you know years, and like they've dialed in the experience to where it's a really fun cruise through the San Blas Islands, which are these like Corona-looking islands off the coast of Panama in the Caribbean. It's coconut islands with mm. sand beaches, which apparently are not natural. The indigenous people, I think even before white people, cut down all the mangroves and planted coconuts and they're all disappearing. All those beautiful Corona beaches are slowly getting eaten away because the mangroves are gone. Okay. Um, and it's one of those few like environmental things that was actually caused by indigenous people. It's interesting in the modern age. Little So they're they're going away. That's what they say, you know, okay. like slowly every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're beautiful to sail through now. So get on there, people. Get out there before they're gone. Um Sail, people. <laughs> sail from Panama to, to Cartagena. So you're, what was dictating, I mean, this one, this, this modality of travel was dictated by uh, death, apparently, the potential of death. Uh, why, were, why were y'all choosing, like, or, what was it? Were you taking buses? Uh, what, what were you taking if you weren't riding your bike from town to town? And, yeah. And what was dictating? Was it safety? Was it, uh, yeah, what was so making it, that it decision? it started... With only biking, and then uh, a couple days in, my I got a I got a flat on my crappy Craigslist tire or something, or did something that was beyond my skill to repair with the tools that I had. So we had to hitchhike. So the first time we rode in a car, we hitchhiked a few miles, and we we're like, well, I guess we just broke the purity of the trip already. Not really. We didn't really know how pure we we're going to be about anything at any point anyway, but. Um, so like we did that and then we biked a little more and then at some point Jed's mom came and met up with us in an RV and we we drove for like a day with her just to hang out and then got off and rode and and then I think we rode all the way through Baja until midway through Baja Jed got sick after we did our longest day it was like 112 miles or something like that and uh, he got like, I don't know if it was exhaustion or there's something that got him. He's like throwing up and stuff a lot. And and we had to get across the Baja. 
at some point in Baja, we got word that our friends were going to be in a beach in mainland Mexico that we were going by on said date. And they were doing a surf trip. And I was like, let's go there. <laughs> and so I was really pushing for it. And, and Jay was like, okay. And so like, we'll just bike as far as we can and then take a bus at the last minute, make up whatever room. But midway through Baja, since he was already sick, we bust across Baja, which would have been like a two-day drive, like from Sur to Norte, like you, you go across the middle. Okay. We didn't do that. And then we started riding the south of Baja, which is amazing riding. It's so beautiful, the, the coast over there, because that's on the east coast of Baja. Um, and there we met some people that we stayed with, like an old family, and like these moms were like driving to La Paz the next day, and we rode with them to take the ferry. So that's when things started picking up. We got a ride. That was like days out of our trip ride. Hmm. Um, but we were still trying to meet these friends. Get to mainland Mexico. I think we bust from Mazatlan to Puerto Vallarta. And then tried to bike and then something else broke and we bust again. So that was the beginning of like, okay, we're starting to bus. Um, <laughs> and we caught up with these guys. We were stoked on it. We tried to bike away. That was when the whole cartel debacle happens. Oh, yeah. We tried to bike away. Another bike thing happens. We have to get picked up by the family that it, and then take us to Morelia. We're always trying to get on our bikes, but my bike keeps breaking and stuff. <laughs> uh, we get new parts there. I get new wheels and Baja and stuff, and now we're pretty good. And then we bike towards Mexico City until just outside of it. And then once we get on the outskirts, we bust in because we don't want to ride in Mexico City, uh, which we eventually did do, and I got lost on the interstate. <laughs> um, and then from there, like it was pretty open. Like we had to bus to Oaxaca. Jed had already shipped his bike from Mexico City. Uh, I met back up with him in Nicaragua, and then and like I bust from Oaxaca to Nicaragua because mm. I was alone and I had friends meeting up and I had to meet up with him by then. And then bicycled all the way across Costa Rica, coast to coast. That was fun. It's the only country we did like coast to coast. So we we biked into the Caribbean side, which is really cool, and oh, cool. crossed Panama in the north which is a beautiful area of Panama too, Bocas del Toro. That's where I spent my birthday um, on some islands. And then biked across Panama to Panama City, took the sailboat. And then Cartagena, we biked most of the way to Medellin. Maybe we bust outside of the main city. We did a little busing, but like definitely biked into Medellin. And then Bogota was similar. And then from there on, it was a lot of busing until pretty much till Peru where we hadn't biked in a long time and we think we're going to get in the Andes and bike into Cusco. Nice. And what I'm realizing is I'm like, Hey, I'm out of condition now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's been like two or three months. It feels like since like really regular, like strenuous biking. Uh, and I, has been a lot of partying and traveling and stuff. And, uh, we both had like food sickness. And then that was the, the long night where it rained on us. Oh, really? Bike, it was the first time we biked uphill all day. And all we could see was uphill beyond us when we pitched our hammocks at night. I was like, this is different. The, these mountains, we've biked across a lot of mountains already. And like, this is very, Peru is no joke. Yeah. And so we're at like eight, 10,000 feet probably. And like deliriously looking for a place. For the first time in the trip, there's nowhere to hang our hammocks. Baja, Oasis has appeared when it was time to camp. Wow. We'd hang our hammocks from giant cacti. Yeah. Uh, 
first time in 10 months, there was like no place. And oh then, my God. And that's when this like Indian woman showed up on a You're horseback. just above tree line? There were trees. It was just very rocky and it was like more of a side of a mountain than this. Like it was lots of switchbacks. Okay. It was just going up this mountain. There was no yeah. land. It was all like that. Right. It was all that slope. And so like, you know, you got trees here, but like are any of them close enough together and it's all weird slope and stuff. And it was kind of like this if there's like a road going up it. Um, but yeah, that was, so that was a kind of mistake, but that was like the hardest night of the whole trip and of my life was like, it rained on us that night. The magic woman appears and I'm like, is it going to rain tonight? Magic woman? Oh, you're just out and she like rolls up on y'all or something? Yeah, I mean, like I was pretty kind of delirious, like looking, I'm like, can I tie a rope to this rock? Like what it was, like in retrospect, as a Boy Scout, it was like not a really good place to set up camp, but I'm like being a little desperate. And she just pops up on a horse, like from around a, a corner or a hill. And she's like, this isn't a good place to camp. Like come camp at my place is what we put together. She spoke bad Spanish and mm. so did we. She was a Quechua um, woman, which is like native people in Peru. Um, and we follow her up and I'm exhausted. And then I'm like, my lesson from this is like, I'm like leaning into the like magic of the trip and like letting go of my Boy Scout be prepared motto, which is always a mistake. Like <laughs> you can't rely too much on like the serendipity. And so I push it and I'm like, do you think it'll rain tonight? But what I say is like, agua de cielo en la noche. <laughs> And that means water from the sky in the night, which is like, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and she speaks bad Spanish and she just says, no. No. <laughs> and so we take it. And the only night on the trip, we didn't hang our, our tarps at like 10,000 feet. It starts raining at like 10 o'clock at night. And we're just laying on tarps on the ground with a tarp as a blanket over our sleeping bags. So by the time we felt the water hit us, that meant everything was saturated because we were in between two tarps. Yeah. And then I just spent the whole night trying not to die from hypothermia in my head. I don't know how close I ever actually was, but the whole night I'm just like. Just miserable. You're stay cold. Stay warm. You're wet. Shiver. Stay yeah. awake. Did you and Jed ever cuddle? We didn't. And I've wondered that many times since. I'm like, why didn't we just cuddle? I would have cuddled the hell warmth. out of somebody. <laughs> I was just so, I think the altitude and stuff or uh, elevation. Yeah. Like I was just like so out of it. And, tired and I am and not, I mean, I'm a Florida cracker. Like that's, <laughs> that's what like old Florida people are called. Like from like cracking whips, getting cows out of the brush. Um, but like those people are tall and skinny and I'm built for the tropics. I'm not, I'm better the cold now that I live in the mountains, but I was very miserable and disoriented. Yeah. Like, like I do not do, I have no body fat, especially on that trip. Yeah, Jed doesn't either. And I was just. <laughs> <laughs> I still would have cuddled. No, whatever. yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. It's the advice I would give anyone, but I, did, I didn't for whatever reason. Yeah. We're recording. And we're Weston back on is the air. on the air. Hello and welcome to Bikes or Death. With Weston, a.k.a. Philip Crosby. Or Philip Crosby, a.k.a. Weston. Whatever you want to call me. I want to go with the latter. Depends on if you're talking about the book or not, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It is funny because like Weston has become a... Uh, like I'll be like, oh, that was so Weston. Like it's it's a it's almost. What do you call that? AF? I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, like that was my Weston like persona. Yeah, like my, a, like the Weston is coming out. Yeah, my exactly. Weston is showing. Yeah, Mister Hyde. <laughs> I think we all have a. I don't know. I, I I don't think we all have a little Weston in us. I think I have a little Weston in me. You know, that like is is eager to get out and and see the world. And actually, that's a great segue. Um, well, actually, before we segue into that, because I guess what I would like to talk about is that perspective of 
you know, now being a, a father, husband, grounded on 20 acres and what's that that's kind of like um, versus, you know, being free and nomadic on the bike. Um, but I think before we get into that, we should we should kind of round out your story on the trip. I know that the uh, the mountain experience was near the end of, of your trip. That uh, final mountain, yeah. That final mountain where you're cold and... Yeah. So like... Um, yeah, why ultimately leave and, and, you know, because, you know, you didn't make it all the way to Patagonia. You, you were honest from the start. You never knew how far you were going to go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the story kind of leaves off and leaves us hanging a little bit. Like For what sure. happened to West? That's Jed hanging. Yeah. <laughs> you left Jed hanging uh, um, and, and everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say that my experience, whether this is a cop out or not, was not that I did much of anything. I felt just as much a passenger on the events that unfurled. My intention was to come back and continue to bike. Um, we got the opportunity and said yes to fly from Cusco to Telluride to attend a film festival that Jed had been to a bunch. Uh, his like mentor flew us out and it's like this cool gathering of a lot of like really interesting do-gooders and adventure sports people, which is like right up our alley. So for the first time on the trip, I, I left the trip uh, with Jed and I was supposed to fly to Telluride and then go to a wedding in Hawaii and then fly back from Hawaii to LA and take a flight from LA back to Cusco. That was the plan when we left Cusco. Uh, Telluride went fine. I fly to Hawaii. I went on my buddy who was getting married. He got me a companion ticket. His dad was a pilot. So, or stepdad, and I flew out there, no problem. I'd never flown standby on a companion ticket in my life. My experience was getting on the plane, getting out there, got to Hawaii, no problem. Went to the wedding, it was great. Day after the wedding, go to the airport, and I'm like, hey, I've got this companion ticket, I want to go to LA. And they're like, okay, well, that will be, you know, a day or two. I was like, whoa. Uh, I thought I could just get on, like, a plane, you know, wait at the airport and get on a plane some amount of hours or something, and... I guess a lot of people in Hawaii have friends in the airline industry is what I've learned since mm. then. And like, there's a lot of people flying standby. So the lists get really long, I guess. And I was like the lowest priority. Um, so I spent a couple, three, two or three, two nights at least, maybe three, sleeping uh, on the sand on Sunset Beach because uh, I didn't have anywhere to stay or any money or anything. And just trying to get off of Hawaii in time to make my flight back to Peru but I didn't get back to LA until about 12 hours after my flight for Peru had left by the time I got off Hawaii. So then I was just kind of in a conundrum of like all my belongings and my bicycle and Jed and everything are in Cusco. I'm like, do I try and crowdfund money? Which I was already, I felt like I was in the hole. Like I'd been doing these like postcards to raise money, but I was way behind. Turns out it's way hard to write postcards while you're riding a bike all day as well. Mm. Um, and I like sold too many whenever I first like posted about it. And like, I was just like the idea of crowdfunding more money at that point just felt like more of a weight. I'm like, well, I'm going to go down there and just feel like shit biking through South America. Cause like I owe people things and like, how do I pull it? It was a good idea, but it's just difficult to pull off in real time. And then, so the idea was I could go make money to fly back down and then figure out how to get to wherever Jed was by the time I had made the money to get to my bike. Uh, and, but then I'd also realized that my friend had just spent a lot of money getting me to his wedding. Um, 
and if I was going to go make money for anything, it felt more appropriate to like pay him back if I was like going to be suddenly off the trip and have to go work somewhere in America, which is crazy because like none of this was the plan. I didn't know that I was like going to be back in the real world after living like a nomad for 10 months day to day. Um, but I was, and so I got back and I went and made money and gave it to my friend. And then by the time that was all done, it had been a few months. I think Jed was like in Chile or something. And like somebody had, a bunch of people went down with him to like go to Machu Picchu. And then a few people were going to stay and ride with him. And one of the Machu Picchu guys, I guess, tried to ride my bike and it bucked him like the first day. Oh, he's like, like, you're not, you don't feel right. Yeah. Like, I guess he just like got injured and it got hurt and I don't know whatever came of the bike, but it makes sense to me too. Cause like I had such a relationship with that bike that like I knew how to ride it as well as I needed to ride almost anything, but it was not a safe bike for like just anyone to hop on. Like if you don't know how to ride and like if you weren't going to take it really easy for a while. You know, I took yeah. it easy it's for like weeks. like an old car with its kinks and like you just have to, you have to know how to finesse yeah, it. Yeah, be able to lean right and, and hear the yeah. things and know when to push it just a little more or yeah, less, you know, yeah. and like, and I learned a lot of that the hard way and like if scars and stuff and like learned it in California on the way down and stuff. So I just thought that was, uh, when I heard that story, I was like, that makes sense. She would, she would do that. This <laughs> is not an easy bike to ride, but it was, it was a good bike. But so, any regrets on not going back? Like, did you do you feel like you kind of got whatever you came for out of it? Um, how did that sit with you? Yeah, I mean, I was obviously bummed, and I would love to have been able to just go back somehow, you know, and had the resources to just make that decision. Um, but I was also not. You know, I didn't have like a destination or or a plan or anything. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I didn't make it anywhere. For I just saw it as like I made it. My trip was to Peru, mm -hmm. and like I, I think I was telling you, like temperamentally, I don't really enjoy even Peru that much. Like I, I do like if I work for it and I watch the shows and stuff. But like Jed seemed really attracted to like Patagonia and the Andes and like that. So he loves mountains. Like he loves like the new mountains like out west. He lives in LA. I am, and I learned this about myself on that trip, I'm much more inclined towards green and warmth. And like, I love these mountains on the East Coast. They're older and like, there's a lot more biodiversity and they're green and... Um, it's green year round here, I'd imagine. Not as green as this, but... No, I mean, it, it all dies in the winter, but it's like, it's much shorter lived and like, and it comes to this, whereas the, you don't really get this sort of thing out west. Like those mountains are younger. There's a lot fewer species of everything, plants and animals. They just haven't been around as long. And um, he likes that kind of beauty. And I do, I like it enough. I can appreciate it. And I came to appreciate a lot of types of beauty. I didn't know I would like the desert and stuff on that trip. But uh, just in retrospect and looking back, it's like, it makes sense to me that like, I'd miss that. And part of me felt like because I didn't appreciate that, even though we talked about it for 10 months and like I knew it was coming, like that sort of stuff. And I was a little bitchy in the cold and the mountains and stuff. Like I felt like it was honestly like God or whatever doing Jed a favor too. Like he's getting to experience this without somebody. He'd learned anything I could teach him or help him with by that point. And so like now he's getting to experience it. And I always kind of thought it was important that he did part of the trip alone for whatever reason, because... I, I thought it, you know, he had his own trip. I was trying to support it the whole time and stuff. And I just didn't, I thought maybe he, he, that would be a good experience. And 
I didn't experience making a choice, but all of that did come about. Like, I, I don't right. know. Yeah, it wasn't like an intentional thing, but it's like what ended up happening. It, yeah. And so like, that's just kind of how I look at it. And I'm like, I had a trip to Peru and he had a trip. I don't even look at it as like, I didn't fin- Like I did finish. I'm like, I went to Peru. I'm like who's by, bi- I mean, if you've biked past Peru, then maybe you can frame it that way too. <laughs> but until you have like. At me, bro. Uh, well, I mean, whose standard are you living up it. to, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, and like, hey, and plenty of people have biked past Peru. Like yeah. purely too. No buses, no any, you know, it's like every year, hundreds of people go from like Alaska to Patagonia. Yeah. It's like, it's not like we invented any wheel or anything, but our trip was, was our trip. And like, I love it. Like the way we did it. Like, I think it's a, it's a really nice way to do it. And traveling with a bicycle is still just fun. Like even if you're going to use buses and stuff too, because you can really explore a place. You said this last night when we were talking around the campfire and I wrote it down because um, I didn't want to forget it. But yeah, so you wrote, you said something along the lines, oh, you said I, you have to bike here. You can't just like drive here. You said something along the lines of how like you'd been back to Oaxaca, you'd driven to the same place and you had just a completely different experience and, and you really emphasized the importance of riding your bike there. Is that something you can articulate? Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, it's the thing like I talk with my friends about and that we seem to feel, which is like how you arrive somewhere is where you arrive in some sense, right? So like you can, if you've bikepacked, you can, you've been to the top of a mountain that someone can drive to, but you've seen how you look at the mountains up there after you biked up it versus how like the cars pull off and look and then drive away like five minutes later or two minutes, you know, much faster or something. And I think, I've tried to bring people back to places from the trip. Like I, in the first few years after I got back, I was like trying to share stuff. And I realized like these places are magical and we have different experiences and stuff, but it's also just not the same place. Cause I was in a different vibration or gear or whatever, um, the way I arrived there. And like part of that, like analogy that I've talked with my friends about is like, I feel like there's like a, a tail that has to catch up with me and like, the more artificial and fast I do something, the longer the tail is. So like if I fly somewhere, it may take a day mm, or two to really feel yeah. like I'm there. You know, mm-hmm. like I have to like wait and like kind of recalibrate. Or if you like, I've motorcycle tripped and that was, you know, better than car trip. Car tripping is pretty good. Like you get to see the country, but you're still like, you know, it's pretty easy to get in a zone to like get to the next thing and like blast through and hold that pee and whatever and get out of the moment. And then motorcycle tripping's a little more in the moment. You're getting off the bike and stuff more. And then bike tripping was like, you know, an exponentially different. Like it was like, that felt like, I know it's not walking, but it felt like it's a human speed. And it's like, I feel like it I really saw Mexico. Like, I feel like I've been to more of Mexico than most Mexicans ever will. Like right. just because the speed I did it and like how I got to experience it. And uh, um, there's something really cool to it. And, and by bike, you pretty much arrive as yourself. You may need a minute or two. That tail is short. Yeah. And then I think of Jed's dad and mom, like walking across America. And I was imagining, I imagined they were just themselves the whole all time. the time. Yeah. There was no tail. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's something I, I kind of put all together after the trip was yeah. like when I started flying places again, I was like, Whoa, this is so weird. Like I've been living at this one speed for so long. Yeah. It's a much interesting, a much it's it's much more informative experience to power yourself through it. So like you feel that mountain, like you have a per- personal relationship and understanding of that mountain 
the climb as well as the downhill or, you know, what the weather's like in this area or that taco stand on the side of the road that's selling mezcal out of an old Coca-Cola bottle or, you know, like you have a much more intimate um, understanding and appreciation for the place that you're traveling through when you, like your body is the thing that's transporting you and not, and I'm, I'm, I used to own a motorcycle company that was a part of my life too. So I've done the, I've done a lot of motorcycle travel as well. And certainly like it's cars are cool really opens up, you know, United States and different land masses and you can really see a lot and motorcycles, you're, you're a little bit more exposed to the elements and, and what you're doing. And, uh, it just gets better and better. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to start walking though. I think I'll stick with the bike for a little <sighs> I bit think longer. It's going to take a little while. Yeah. <laughs> one to walk, but it could be fun. But I, I don't know. I think, I think a lot, there's a lot of parallels between cycling or biking. Like the human powered aspect of it is, is the thing I think that really brings you into that moment to kind of make your point is like, yeah. you are present in that moment and you can't check out. Yeah. You know, you, you have to ride your bike or you have to get off your bike and walk it up a mountain, but you can't check out. Until you get so into it that you uh, hit flow state. The flow state, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. I had never even read about that or heard about that. And in Baja, I started just like my mind separating from my body, like riding just the same horizon, same color all day forever mm. under the heat. And like, I was at first, I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And then eventually I was like, oh, this is weird. I could feel my body, like everything shifted and I'm like riding better than I've ever ridden. Like my body like took over and my brain kind of disassociated and I'm not telling my legs to do anything. It's fact, like the more I can make myself pull back my brain, the better I rode and like I was better balanced and like distributing all my energy and like just like flying through the desert. And and I would just go into my brain and like think, I like, get to like go back and like think about all my memories from the past. Like I think I went through my whole life going through the desert, like yeah. just following. All, and I'd never in my life had that like freedom of like, my body's occupied. It knows what it's doing. It's free to actually like take over. I'm not even having to like manage it. Cause I just, especially if I got high and rode, like by that point, <laughs> really get you in there sometimes. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know how to explain the experience. It sounds like when people talk about therapy, like I could just like go through everything and like see it as an adult in the desert and just be a lot more real and like it's like look at like life is harsh and stuff and like or whatever and find my appreciation for it it was a crazy experience yeah i mean i know one neat thing about you is you're not necessarily like part of cycling culture or follow it really that closely um but it's something that gets echoed a lot through you know talking to a lot of different people is you know movement is medicine or, or bikes are therapeutic and I don't need a therapist. I have a bike and we kind of joke around about it, but the reality is it's, it's, it's just, if you're on a bike for the entire day, multiple days on end, yeah. you're going to have a lot of time with your thoughts. And that's a luxury that we do not afford ourselves in, in day-to-day life. Even being out here on the farm, there's a lot of things that you need to be doing all the time. You just got a phone call. You might need to go, you know, say hi to your kid, yeah. you know, at some okay. point. Yeah, I know. But like, the point is like, there's things, right? There's things. There's, there's someone that's going to DM you and say, hey, do you want to go get a drink or you got to mow the grass or whatever it is. And always got to mow the grass. If all you have to do is ride your bike for the entire day, it gives you the freedom to maybe, you know, do work. Like think about yourself, like process all these things that have happened in your life. And, and that's therapeutic, like having an understanding of like where you are, how you got here, why you got here and, and coming to terms with that in some way. Sounds a lot like therapy. It was unreal. Like, and not knowing where we're camping or caring, just like knowing around sunset, we start looking. 
yeah. was like we didn't even have the added burden of like looking for a mile marker or a thing or like right. having a number to hit or anything. It was just like go all day until you want to stop. And we we were pretty good about always like you want to stop? Sure. Like everyone was supportive. You know, we were always supportive and stuff and like yeah. <laughs> um, on the same page. And like that was that was a luxury looking back that like I think I don't know how to emulate like or right. I mean, I guess you just gotta gotta go for it, and like I don't know how to tell people how to do anything like that, you know. But knowing that all we had to do was go south for so many months, and that we just like kind of figure everything out in the moment, it was it was very freeing because like you're you don't have that back of your mind operating on you know trying to figure out like oh are we getting to the spot, what time we're gonna get to the spot, we gotta set up yeah. camp and stuff. So you can really just go into that flow state and yeah. let it go. No. Perfect. That see you segued to it twice, so we'll hit it this time. But that freedom that you're talking about, and and having yeah the freedom to explore yourself and not even know where you're going to camp and not know where you're going to eat, um, is in such drastic parallel to how you're living now. Um, and so, I'm I'm curious, like to what degree did that experience help shape, you know? your life going forward and, and I, to what degree did it play a role in, in the lifestyle that you're currently living? Um, I feel like I, I feel like I, I mean, I don't know, I can get all philosophical about it. I feel like I feel more free now in a lot of ways, Okay, but I know what you mean by that. And, uh, I had a lot of energy and adventure and, and spirit to kind of test and get out way in retrospect, I kind of think that maybe I wanted to know my limits and that to know how much I can withstand uh, to not be afraid in the world in a way, like that, like living without money and stuff or like physically. And for me, that mountain experience with like the cold and everything, like in like the antithetical climate and location for what my body type is made. Um after living through that and then like the next day was like a fucking miracle too like we waved down two cops who throw the, our bicycles on top of their car and drive us to the top of the mountain because we're like shivering and we need to get to a town we're gonna get sick soon and we know it and they're like we can't drive you down but you know we'll drive you to the top and you can just bomb into there's a town of the, the valley and like they drop us at the top and there's like these Incan ruins He's like, yeah, people don't normally go. They go to Machu Picchu, but these are just as old and they're right. And they're like, oh. So I never made it to Machu Picchu, but I saw these like ruins on this random mountaintop that nobody was at. Yeah, that's and, rad. And then we biked down um, through fields of quinoa, which I'd never seen before either. And it was all ripe and red. So just like fields of fire bombing our last hill. We didn't know it, but all together on the bikes, the most beautiful like movie scene, like amazing. And then, get down to the bottom and then we hop on a bus and make it to Cusco where we can get in the hotel and we both got sick. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't, I think for me in, in retrospect that night was enough. And like, I don't necessarily know my limits and stuff, but like I haven't faced a situation where I need to know more than that. Hmm. I'm like, I can make it through that. Yeah. Like I'm not really, I haven't seen anything that scares me more than that yet. And I, I'm sure I will want to go travel and test an adventure again, but like, I feel like I learned enough of what I can withstand and with capable of to like take on the life I wanted to do, which is kind of like settle down and farm and raise a family and stuff. 
which I think were probably really scary ideas to me when I was younger, even though I wouldn't have been able to say it like, like yeah. that. But I think a lot of it was confronting that fear of like, well, how much can I take? Like every young man or most young men experience that sort of like rite of, like rite of passage initiation thing. I think I was looking for my own sort of like initiation ritual pilgrimage thing. Yeah, so you said that, you know, this lifestyle that you're living now almost has more freedom for you, but I wonder if you could have the freedom you have now without that experience. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm a big believer it all had to... It all had to happen. It all happened to happen the way it did. Or at least that's the only way I know that it works because we're here. <laughs> like, <laughs> we you are change here. a lot of variables and fuck things up. So who knows, like, if any, if I got my way in some way that... Well, the, I think the metric out. is like you seem happy and content, right? Like you're you're Pretty. speaking to a, a freedom that you feel like being here, and I assume like you feel grounded and you know where you're sleeping. Like I, I mean, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but um, but like that is the metric, right? Like what other metric would we be talking about? Yeah, really? and to me, the whole thing feels like the same experience. Like it's like every day, I'm just like yeah. still following that same compass and like just a surprise by a lot of the things that feel right or seem right in the moment. And then like, I try and weave together what the hell happened in retrospect, <laughs> you know, like when I, when you talk about it or think about it. Um, and your your sense of like curiosity and uh, especially, you know, your interest in like uh, plants and stuff. I follow you on Instagram and uh, you're a great follow on Instagram because, you know, you take people around your farm, but it's really educational. Like I'm learning a lot. I'm like, oh, you know, like a lot about these plants. Like you don't just know a lot about uh, plant medicines or psychedelics. Um, like you've, you've really learned a lot about, you know, plant life, animal life, um, regenerative farming. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's the same thread in your, in, in the life, you know, it's like that curiosity to like understand this world and, and how do I fit into it? And what is, what is my role? I don't know. I feel and, like I'm putting and words be in healthy, your mouth. You know, like the health thing is huge for me. Like, how do I live in it comfortably and well? And, to where I'm like at the most optimal stage to interact with it and enjoy it type thing. Like that's like a big, that's what attracted me to food and stuff and food systems and like the idea of later, the idea of like responsibility and stuff and like food is like a statement or pro, not a protester, but like, you know, it's just like a different lifestyle. And like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I later came to like start, I, I now like to accept responsibility where I can find it and like take on burdens and stuff. And I wasn't quite like that when I was traveling around. Yeah. It's probably more. A little time in a season, you know? Yeah. Traveling lighter then. <laughs> but, but I guess a lot the, lighter. the health thing uh, is, is, is a big theme in my life generally too. Yeah. It's like why I enjoy the bicycling and surfing and stuff too as well. Like I like how it feels afterwards and right. Well, that's capable. cool too. If we're talking about drugs, is the our body's like natural endorphins that we get when we do things like that, right? It's like it's it's a naturally built-in reward system. That I don't know a lot about that stuff, honestly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was I, I mean I don't I need to research this because I just saw this on Instagram. So this could be total horseshit. I know <laughs> you get on Instagram. It's got to be. I know you get endorphins like when you work out and exercise. Is why they talk about it, treating anxiety and depression or or being a, a component of that. Um, eating well, sleeping well. I mean, health, being a healthy person all contributes to that. But there was this video that she was talking about how there's this new protein that they discovered, discovered that only, it's like a feel-good protein and it's like separate from um, endorphins that we feel, but uh, that 
yeah, like when we exercise, we're getting, we were like growing this like, uh, what she called like a feel good protein. And like I saved it on Instagram. I, I want to like go and research it. So this won't make the podcast. I'm just telling you. Uh, sounds right. It's, but yeah, it sounds right. Like it, there's, I think there's something there that when you're living, you know, a healthy life and especially like if you're intentional about it um, and you're noticing, you know, what's happening on your body and in your mind and the relationships in your life that you're cultivating, there are built in reward systems for those things. You yeah. Know? And I don't know if I fully understand them, but I get it. It's like, yeah. I feel good when I'm doing all those things. That's, and that's where I come from a lot with everything. It's like an embodied experience and like, what are the actual results and stuff? And I like metaphors and language and science and all that stuff too, but it has to feel right or like it makes sense to me, you know, whatever the thing is yeah. regarding health or diet or lifestyle or anything. Yeah. And I think that's the space I was in on that bike trip was just radically getting down to like the basic questions, rebuilding my life. And here we, we are. And here we are. Yeah. Turns out money's not evil. Money's not evil. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I ever thought that. Do you want to hear about what got me inspired by that really quick? About- Like uh, that got me on my whole money kick? Yeah. One of the things you said in the book was money, money's like a current. It flows, it should flow through me. I love that. That was a thing that I had heard or read or put together that I really enjoyed and was experimenting with too. Um, so like, you know, I had this like quasi religious experience of like giving away everything and moving to California and and I started reading, uh, rereading some books and stuff. And like one of the stories I heard that was interesting was the story of Siddhartha, like the Buddha. And the version I heard was uh, Siddhartha was a prince the king had, and he wanted to make sure his son never experienced suffering. So he raised him in a palace with everything he could ever want. And then when he, on his 18th birthday, he like hops over the palace walls and goes to the market to experience the world. And he's suffering for the first time everywhere. This guy's lame. I mean, this guy is whatever poor and like, and he's destroyed and he's, he realizes that like he's been living in affluence while kind of off the backs of all these people because his dad's the king. So he runs away and he decides he's going to not participate anymore in any of that world of like commerce and stuff that's oppressing all these, these poor people. And, uh, he like goes into the woods and he doesn't eat anything. He won't, he doesn't want to kill anything. He's trying to figure out what's right. He's like, well, I can't kill that plant. It's living too. And so he like almost starves to death until he realizes that uh, it's, it would be more of a sin to lose his own life than to participate and eat or, you know, other lives. Um, so he comes to like this kind of like third way, like compromise thing of, of being a beggar. So he's an intentional mm. beggar and he uh, he will eat things that are like alms that are given to him and stuff, but he doesn't work or go out. And um, and I, I thought that was just an interesting story and I don't know, it intrigued me, it, it guided me in some way of like, that was like kind of the idea of like, I'll sell postcards and like, right then it's like not really a job and kind of begging for money and like kind of being comfortable with that. Um, Cause it is, you know, it's, it's like the opposite of what the ego in our culture really want. Like, oh, yeah. like Kickstarter and stuff is like so hard on so many people or any like crowdfunding thing. Cause it's like, you know, it's like, oh, what do you, you know, someone's dad somewhere is saying, oh, he's just begging for money on the internet. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
which I've yeah. done all those things. Yeah, not having money is uh, is a de- definite ego killer, right? Like you're not showing up in the fancy car and nice clothes and buying everyone at the bar a shot or whatever. Yeah. Like you have to, I mean, I don't know. I've, I haven't taken it to the extreme you have. I've been poor a lot of my life and, and, and have kind of been in humbling, you know, situation and circumstances and stuff. But yeah, that's, that is living with humility and that'll kill your ego real quick. Yeah, I mean, just the asking for money. Like, oh my gosh. Like just the, that, like, even if you don't need it, like I worked in nonprofits forever, they're always begging for money. Yeah. It still gets you, you know, it's like, this is for someone else, but it's still like, there's a, it's a humbling thing in our culture at the moment, or at least that's been my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we could talk till the cows come home, but let's wrap this thing up. Let's wrap it up. I, uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. I genuinely appreciate you, um, your hospitality, We've had an excellent couple of days here on your farm in North Carolina. And uh, after reading the book, I, I was very intrigued to, to get to know you a little bit more. And I'm really grateful you were willing to share more of your story and your experience with me and my audience, man. It's been an, like a genuine pleasure. Well, I really, really appreciate getting you to, coming out. Getting to meet you. It's been really nice. Yeah. We'd like to, we'll come back. Maybe Please tonight. do. <laughs> Just kidding. We got dinner reservations. All right, dude. Oh, shit. Thanks. Yeah, man. How do you end this? Do you say something? Uh, just say, <laughs> go ride your damn bike. Go ride your damn bike. Yeah. That's, that's how you close a fucking episode. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. And a special shout out goes to Philip Crosby for not only uh, being a guest on this episode, but also being such a great host. He and his wife treated Natalie and I very well. And uh, it was really neat to get to be in his world. I told him at some point on that weekend how you know, I really want to kind of immerse myself in somebody else's environment. And it really is a neat way to kind of get to know them and understand them um, on a much deeper level, um, even without, you know, communicating, just like witnessing and being kind of in their world, so to speak. And uh, yeah, so it was a really cool set and setting. Speaking of set and setting in this podcast, uh, but I believe set and setting is also uh, important whenever it comes to conversations. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, this one and uh, can't wait to share more episodes with y'all in the near future. I will say I don't exactly know what next week's episode is gonna be. Uh, by then, I'll have three episodes recorded and ready to be edited and stuff. And so I'll need to see how it all shakes out and which one comes out next week. I have an idea of which one it's going to be, of course, but um, there's a reason I'm I'm actually keeping that one close to the vest and we'll see what happens with it. But uh, what else? I am uh, heading up tomorrow morning. So today's Wednesday and uh, tomorrow, Thursday, I'm headed up to Fayetteville, Arkansas and where Natalie and I have signed up to do the 120-mile Ozark Randonneur or Randonnay, depending on however you, whatever your preference is there. And I'm excited. 
I'm excited. It's going to be a good test. I haven't uh, gotten in some proper miles in Arkansas since 2019 when Brandon Pack and I did a trip out there. And I don't remember what episode that is, but there's an episode uh, probably around the 60s uh, where where I did a, a trip out there. But it's been a while. So I'm looking forward to going back. I'm super excited about this event and doing a randonnée. This is my first randonnée. And I've always wanted to do one. I think it's a super cool format. It's something that um, I might like to roll out myself uh, here in Texas one day is, is a similar type of event. And so basically, I just want to go and steal all Andrew's ideas. And uh, then I'm just going to copy everything he does. And that'll be great. And <laughs> the other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to record a podcast while I am there. Um, so I'm planning on recording some audio on my trip. And we might catch up with a person or two along the way. So we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, lots of good podcasting content coming your way, if I do say so myself. All right. Well, I've got to uh, get the bikes ready and get packed up and get ready to hit the road and go ride my damn bike in Arkansas. So until next week, I really appreciate everybody being here. And don't forget, please go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night You grabbed your knife and you held it tight The sounds of beasts kept you awake The sounds they made kept you afraid In the morning you packed your bike Memories forgotten from the previous night You rode faster than ever before Was it your imagination? Merely folklore. Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Oh, death.